back to the bin. Hey everybody, and welcome to another exciting and fun-filled episode of Back to the Bins with the greatest theme song ever. And I don't <laughs> care what anybody says about that. My name is Michael Bailey, and with me tonight, as always, is my good friend Scott H. The H stands for H. Gardner. According to uh, Michael Leyland, it stands for Howdy, and I, we're going to run with that. I like <laughs> It's better than Horatio, I guess. Oh, God. It's better than what it really is. <laughs> and we have Paul Spataro with an A. Howdy. <laughs> what? You know, it's always funny to, to hear somebody with like a really good, heavy, you know, Brooklyn accent go howdy. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it would maybe sound like it's a Texas Ranger. <laughs> no, you got a spin kick for that. That's. Uh, Let's see. You got to grow a beard and you got to spin kick. So, <laughs> I got the beard, but uh, I, I wouldn't know the first thing about spin kicking. <laughs> well, you spin and you kick. There's a little more. There's a little more to it than that, but I think those are the basics. <laughs> I'm in a I'm weird mood confused. today. Confused. I could probably I, do that if I stepped on a roller skate at the top of the stairs or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm in a weird mood today, guys. I actually organized some comics. So I actually feel accomplished for once. <laughs> uh, all of my Superman comics are together again. Cool. So I'm very happy about that. Where were they? I had pulled a bunch for a reading project that never was never finished. Oh, don't you so, hate that? Yeah. And it's, <laughs> I get to, I'm, I, I'm of the opinion now that sometimes I put projects together just to move my comics around because <laughs> I like looking at them. <laughs> and then I have to put them back, and I'm having like real moments with myself. Like I'm looking at the bookshelf, uh, my trade paperback bookshelf uh, today, and going, you know, I got to sell some of these for you know DragonCon money, anyways. But God, I could get rid of like half of these and be and still be a very happy comic fan. So older I get, the more I want to divest myself of stuff. It's very strange. I hear you on that one. Yes, if I had the time. Uh, eBay would uh, would be my best friend right now because yeah I would I would like to declutter a bit myself but yeah who's got the time I'm not, not about me. yeah not me either and I'm not about to just give things away not about the giving away sorry took me too long to amass this collection oh uh, let's see where do we want to go from here. Well, we actually have some emails. <gasps> we do have emails. Thanks to Paul's uh, plea last episode. Man, you guys, uh, you guys uh, came to the rescue here. You guys really uh, flooded the inbox. We probably have more than we're going to be able to read in in one episode. But that's awesome. Uh, so we're going to dive right in here. And uh, I got to say, I uh, <laughs> love this first email. By the way, folks, make sure that uh, you are sending your email to the appropriate show because this first email actually was sent to the Two True Freaks Gmail account. And uh, I had to port it over to this one. I mean, they, they all, you know, in theory, they all get to us. But I check other inboxes more often than uh, than other ones. So you know, if if you're writing to back to the bins, make sure you send it to back to the bins. Anyway, 
This one comes to us from uh, from Chris Keith, and uh, it's entitled uh, "Back to the Bins" episode number ninety one, which I have no idea what the hell episode that was. He says, "Greetings, Paul and Scott." So I'm assuming that this was an episode that Mike was not on. Um, but remember to also uh, to to greet everybody in the group when you send your email, so that nobody feels left out. He says, your most recent episode got me riled up whilst driving to work this morning. Yeah, well, welcome to the welcome to the club. <laughs> <laughs> he says, okay, you have, a, uh, you have a more recent episode, but I'm about a week behind in my listing. The discussion about Gary Friedrich got me interested in this issue uh, about work for hire and the quote-unquote oh-so-wronged creators from the past. Instead of uh, rambling as I tend to do, I thought I would hammer out some bullet points. So bullet point one is, I looked up the terms of the judgment. Friedrich was prohibited from selling unlicensed ghostwriter materials, translation, original art, sketches, etc. They would, in theory, allow him to sign copies of ghostwriter comics, etc. Now, for those that don't know, this is in reference to uh, Gary Friedrich was the, what was he, creator or co-creator, right? Of yeah, I believe he was a co-creator. And Marvel sued him for some large sum he, of money. He sued he sued Marvel for the rights to the character, and they countersued. Counters, that's right. And won, right? They won. Yes. A, what was it? Like and it was seventeen thousand dollars or something. I'm pretty like? sure that's exactly what it was. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's what this is all about. This is the only way Marvel uh, or DC or others would bitch about original art is if the jackass artist turns around and tries to bite the hand that originally fed him. I am amazed that others haven't jumped down the throats of some of these artists, but I'm happy that they don't. Uh, Not that I can afford the sketches, but I like the principle. Think about it this way. Supermanhomepage.com can't even say Superman on the shirts that they sell, or they would most likely get sued. I don't know if the Star Wars celebration you guys are uh, going to has original art, but I could easily see George the Control Freak Lucas. Ah, 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 ah. This is not a safe zone for bashing on George Lucas. I just got to point that out. <laughs> Clamping down on the practice and having uh, the celebs only sign licensed materials. Moral, don't awaken a sleeping giant. Those are uh, words to live by, by the way. Um, point two, contract negotiations. I made this point in an Alan Moore discussion on Facebook that, I'm embarrassed to say, pulled Jimmy Palmiotti into the discussion. Why would you be embarrassed about that? Jimmy's a hell of a nice guy. Uh, anyway, that all these creators negotiated their contracts. Moore, for example, made a mint off of Watchmen, and he still pisses and moans. Last time I checked, the clause that allowed DC to keep the rights which they should since the characters just riffed off of Charlton characters, was in the effing contract when he signed it. It cracks me up when I hear about how Jack Kirby, quote-unquote, got screwed. Uh, Not to be completely stereotypical, but do you mean to tell me that a guy named Jacob Kurtzberg doesn't know or is not related to an attorney? Ooh, I'm not touching that one. Three, I think Bailey mentioned... uh, once that either Jerry Siegel or Joe Schuster made quite a bit of money from uh, from DC for Superman, it was then compensated beyond that. If Jerry or Joe honestly thought that they could have marketed Superman to the level that he is today themselves, then they never would have or should have sold. But they did, and what they got is what they negotiated. <laughs> <laughs> you want to elaborate? Um. 
Jerry and Joe made a lot of money from DC. Uh, I, for, I, I don't have the figures in my head, but they, they, they made quite a bit of money in their time working for DC Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the sticking point is, is, is basically it was two guys from Cleveland going up against a very smart accountant. And they said that it made more money than Jack Leibowitz uh, said it made. So Leibowitz was able to juggle the books and say, "Well, we right. we actually lost money here, so we only owe you what you what what we have paid you, but we're gonna we're gonna give you a little bit more here and and all that." But it's just <laughs> that whole thing is just a hornet's nest because right. I have learned some things uh, in the last month or so about. Um, Jerry and Joe and the the lawsuit with DC and all that that made that make me very angry that this suit is still going on. So um, they, they for example they discovered uh, when Joe Schuster died that he was paying uh, Joanne Siegel twelve hundred dollars a month for what uh, for negotiating the deal with DC. Hmm. So to get money to one of the co-creators of Superman, they had to he had to pay money to the other co-creator which seems to me like it pissed me off when i found it out actually (laughs) it actually made me physically angry i was like are you kidding me you didn't just negotiate it because it was the right thing to do you're gonna take twelve hundred dollars a month from this guy i mean yeah in the grand scheme of things to some people twelve hundred dollars might not you know might be kind of a drop in the bucket but my god in heaven that's a lot of money over a 20 30 year period Mm -hmm. right yeah so uh, point four here, Stan suing Marvel. Again, if Stan had a contract, then he knew uh, what he should have received. If they screwed him, he would be able to recover. Contracts are contracts, and if there are terms, uh, and if the terms are there, and yet again, Stanley Lieber equals knows or is related to an attorney. Uh, five, I think the message for the creators is this. Quit living in the now. Plan ahead. All right, this is where I've got to stop, and, and I'm going to offer one of my few comments on this. Because honestly, I don't think I have anything new to add to this discussion that I didn't say before. I, I see both sides of this issue. Yeah. i got to be honest that I'm squarely on the fence. As I said before, I, I, you know, it would suck to be the guy that created Superman or Spider-Man or Coca-Cola. And at the end of the day, you only ever see a f- tiny fraction of what that property ends up netting you know, in the course of its of its lifetime. That would suck. And I can appreciate it from that level. On the other side, I totally appreciate it from the contract level. You signed a goddamn contract. That's what a contract is. I'm sorry that it sucks for you that your creation went on to be worth zillions more than what you got paid for it, but a contract is a contract is a contract. This is the only part, portion of this that I have to disagree with you on, Chris, is that this plan ahead thing. Dude, there is no way in the friggin' world that Siegel and Schuster in 1938 had any idea what Superman would become. Not a clue. Nobody did. You, there's no, no way you can not see Not at all. There's considering, no, hmm? I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt no, you. No, considering how many people considering how many people turned down the property. How how many people were wanting the property but wanting it in a different form? One uh, one publisher was like, "Yeah, we'll take it, but we want it to be prose with illustrations." So th- there is absolutely no way that they could have known. I mean, it, it was near and dear to their hearts, but by the time you know, 
Superman is in Action Comics number one because they needed a lead feature. It's right. the only reason they bought Superman is because they needed it. It wasn't that DC uh, had some great faith in the property. They thought, hey, this this is exciting, let's put it in there. The fact that it was successful came as a complete shock to everybody. Right. Believe me, I have read a lot, a lot of biographies over the years because I, I'm always fascinated by successful people and, and how things came together. And if there's any common denominators in those stories, it's usually two things, is that their own success took them completely by surprise and that they, they, they literally had no idea that if they were successful, just how successful they were really going to be. And I mean, you you can you can plug in literally thousands of names to that list, whether it's Siegel and Schuster, whether it's Eastman and Laird with the Turtles, whether it's Walt Disney, for Christ's sakes, had no idea that the th- I'm sure he had faith in his ideas. And all these people have faith that, you know, gee, I hope somebody likes my my Ninja Turtle idea or something like that. But at the end of the day. You know, none of these guys ever have a clue that what they're creating is going to go on to be something that's that's epic. And, and you know, 20, 30, 100 years down the line, people are still talking about it and buying T-shirts with that image or whatever. There, there's no way in the world that you can plan for that. I, I, I think I see where you're going with that, but I, I think that that's just a, an un, unreal expectation to put onto somebody. And I mean, if I walked into Marvel's offices tomorrow and said, dudes, I've got this idea for this character. And believe me, you know, 20 years from now, he's going to rake in millions for this company. So I want this really sweet, lucrative deal. They'll laugh you out of the friggin' office. There's, there's no way that they'll do that. You know, you, you have to have some sort of, you know, proven something, I would imagine to get that kind of a great deal. You know, you, you can't just the factor in the fact that, uh, when when Superman was created, comic you know original comic books was a fledgling industry. They had mm-hmm. no idea where that was going to go at the time. Right. And and the Superman they introduced in Action Comics number one is a far cry from the character that continued later. Right. I mean they, that character was changed a lot, and some of it was under their you know, under their watch, and some of it happened you know many years later by other people. But the original character that was created, uh, if not for the different format, you know a lot of people. I think this is overstating it, but a lot of people could say it's derivative of, you know, Gladiator and uh, John Carter. You know, I, I think you can you can flat out say it's derivative derivative of Gladiator, considering Siegel wrote a review of the book, right? And that there are scenes directed in the early Superman stories that are lifted directly from Gladiator. So, right. So, so you know, it it isn't. I, I, like I said, I don't want to overstate it, but it's not the totally 100% original character that people want to make it out to be now. Right. What was really 100% original was the format more than the character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and who knew in 1938 what that format was going to become? Yeah, and, it- and, and, and to be very fair, not that Jack Leibowitz and Harry Donenfeld were the most moral and ethical of people. I mean, for crying out loud, Harry Donenfeld got into comics because New York was cracking down on the porno industry and he had to get out of it. <laughs> so, I mean, let, let's be honest here. And he, he knew people, you know, named Lucky Luciano and then Frank Costello and stuff like that. So, you know, we're, we're not talking 
not talking the most up-and-up people, but at the same time, they're the ones that sunk the money into the merchandising and invested in the character and got it to radio and got it to the movie serials and got, you know, worked out a deal with Paramount to have animated uh, shorts created for the movie theaters. You know, it's just, uh, you know, I I don't really want to get into the whole who was right, who was wrong. I'm kind of like Scott. I don't think I was involved in this conversation, but... um, I'm very much like Scott in that I'm I'm kind of on the fence on these things because one, there's no way that we can know what happened in the offices when the contracts were signed. There's just no way we can't know. We weren't there. Also, you, you can assume on that. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mike, but what what you can assume on that is you're talking about a time when the legal process was a little less sophisticated than it is now, and I believe contract law was also less sophisticated than it is now. And I think a lot of these people, you know, more or less were used to working on a handshake. In 1938, the Depression wasn't even over yet. You know, you, you had a chance to get a, uh, you know, a decent paycheck from a company. It was like, okay, great, done. Right, right. I mean, of, of all people, Mark Wade, who, you know, is the biggest Superman fan on the face of the planet. I'll just say that flat out. And he was asked to testify for Warner Brothers in the Siegel lawsuit. And at first, he didn't want to do it because he's like, I'm not testifying for the man. You know, Jerry and Joe got screwed. And that's when people sat him down and went, no, look, this is what happened. We have offered them, you know, lucrative uh, options so far. And the main problem, and I don't want to get too much into this because I don't want to get us sued, but uh, it seems, you know, it's been suggested that the Siegel's attorney um, is trying to basically get Superman for himself almost. So that he'll be part of the group that owns the character and can license and make the money off of it. Right. So that's where it's all coming from. Uh, I hate that lawsuit. I'm going to be so glad when it's over. <laughs> if it There'll ever be another is. one right behind it. Yeah. There's always someone. Well, Chris continues here. He says, I don't think that uh, John Romita Sr. is living as a pauper, what art director or whatever for Marvel, etc. The fact of the matter may have been that Jack Kirby was just a bad businessman. And I don't think he died penniless in a ditch. Not sure of his later uh, year's financial situation, but I don't recall that he was starving. Some of these guys couldn't market themselves for shit, and that's why they ended up in their uh, position in life. It sucks, but they can't blame DC or Marvel because they suck at negotiations. But because they are old, we are supposed to overlook the fact that they put themselves in that position. If they put pen to paper and signed away rights to a character without having someone read over the contract... They are the Solomon Grundy of stupid, or maybe 70s Hulk. Uh, there are no loopholes in contract, just stupid asses who only read 50% of the agreement. Okay, no, that's, that was- that's, I'm going to step in there as somebody who knows a little bit about the law. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> There's contracts that have ambiguous terms, mm-hmm. and then someone has to figure out what they mean. So not every contract is hard and fast in what, you know, what it says. Continue. Well, it's just this is such a sticky wicket because I, I, I again I, I do literally see both Watch sides. Watch your language, sir. What? <laughs> no, I just I just think sticky wicket sounds dirtier than it oh, really okay. is. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I don't know. This sounds like it's coming down a little bit harsher on the on the creators than maybe it should, and uh, maybe it's just the way I'm reading it. I'm I'm not sure. No, it, it is. It, it, it flat out is. The thing is, is 
comic fans in general, but comic fans in specific, since we're talking about comic books, uh, I don't know what it is about about us, but we want black and white arguments. We don't want gray areas. We want to think of Jerry and Joe as the the good guys and DC as the evil corporation. But it's just not that simple. It never is. Nothing in life is as simple as they signed a contract and you know you know they they're going to get screwed over. Like Paul said, corporations can word things ambiguously so that they can come back later and say, "Oh no, this, that, and the other." It's like I was saying before. You know, you can say. You can say you get this certain percentage if the character makes this amount of money, but I can juggle it so that it shows that the character made less than that, so I don't have to pay you as much. I mean, it's just... Right. Uh, or, I Chris know. wrapped up by saying, uh, okay, that was more needless to say. I enjoyed the discussion, and it got my brain working this morning when I didn't feel like doing actual work. Enjoying King Kong Month, and I'm about to listen to episode 264. I don't know which one that was. He says, thanks, guys, and that's from Chris Keith, Garland, Texas. Thank you, Chris. I I think that was the episode that came out after 263, but before 265. Oh, okay, that one, all right. No, no, no. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Who's got the next one? Uh, Uh, I'll take this one from Jose A. Rivera. And it's a novel, as usual, because we love <laughs> Jose. No, I love Jose. Hey, guy. Oh, it says episode 94, a.k.a. Talking About the Man of Steel. Oh, no. Talking about my generation. Um, hey, guys. It's been a while since I've written in, but allow me to say that I like the addition of Paul to the show. He's a fellow Thank New you, Yorker. <laughs> He's a fellow oh. New Yorker, and we like the Giants. So, okay, yeah. i got to interrupt you right there. <laughs> I... I'm going firmly on the record that I am a Jets fan, not a Giants fan. I, I, I don't think Tom G, DJ would forgive me if I accept to be just thrown under the Giants umbrella. Uh, but I, as a Jets fan, I do not hate the Giants, and I did root for them to win the Super Bowl when they were in there against the very hated New England Patriots. <laughs> you can go on. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. There was... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Didn't make any I'm sorry, sense Scott. To me. I apologize to you for talking the foreign language of sports. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Also, kudos to you guys for remembering Steam Pipe Alley. That brought back so many memories. Now here's where Steam we get Pipe Alley. Do we talk about that? We did. Yes, we did. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is there anything we haven't talked about? Deep throat. But uh, moving on. <clears throat> Now, here's where we get to the nitty-gritty. I'm talking about the uh, the leak for the Nixon thing, not the other <laughs> iteration of that. Now, here's where we get to the nitty-gritty. Uh, Jose continues, Superman. You guys know how much of a Superman fan I am. Scott even read an email on a Superman podcast I wrote all but saying what the character means to me. So now I'm faced with a new movie. When I went to see The Dark Knight Rises, I caught the teaser of Man of Steel. I had seen the Comic-Con footage the week before, and that footage gave me a chance to breathe a sigh of relief with this movie. I'm not the biggest Zack Snyder fan. I think the general consensus with this movie was it was going to have a lot of Snyderisms, i.e. the slow motion zooming back to normal motion, then back to slow motion trick, a super saturated color scheme to scenes, etc. From what I saw of both the footage and the teaser, it doesn't look like he's going with his usual tricks. Mind you, it's just a teaser and some footage, and those have been known to lie. But this looks like a very non-Snyder style, which gives me hope. Also, Henry Cavill looks excellent as Superman. 
One of the things that got me worried was the fact that Clark doesn't seem to wear glasses, but in the footage you can see Clark in an elevator removing a pair of glasses, so that's great. As far as the cast goes, I'm very hit and miss. Henry Cavill has been quite a few people's choices for Superman ever since I came across numerous fan trailers in 2003. So to see him get the role is nice. I love L-O-V-E in capital letters, Jose says. Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent. That, to me, was an outstanding choice. I'll add a little bit of editorialism as long as the edi- as long as the director makes him act. Yes, you're absolutely right. Diane Lane has always been something of a celebrity crush on of mine ever since I was a kid and saw Streets of Fire. So while I don't want her to be the old mother Mar- Martha Kent, that's a good choice too. And another little bit of editorializing, I will say this again. The producers of Man of Steel looked at Smallville and said, I see you're a netto tool for a hot Martha Kent and I raise you Diane Lane. Uh, the both of them, continuing, seem like they could be Kents and really have that middle America vibe to them. So, hell yes. Can't say I've seen enough of Michael Shannon's work to get a reading on him as odd, but quite the interesting choice of Russell Crowe as Jor-El. Lawrence Fishburne as Perry White? Eh, let's see what he can do. The biggest thing for me personally, though, is Amy Adams as Lois Lane. No. Don't get me wrong. Amy Adams is an excellent actress. I can't take that away from her. But as Lois Lane? I don't know. That one didn't win me over. Give me Rebecca Hall or Rachel Weisz or somebody I can believe would not only be an excellent romantic lead, but someone who could be just the kind of reporter who would go the extra mile for a story and wouldn't take crap from anyone. I don't see that from Amy Adams. But I haven't seen the movie yet, and if it all goes well, she'll do a stunning performance and prove me wrong, which I hope is the case. Mike, bless you for making the comparison of Adventures of Superman fans towards Superman the movie. Scott, bless you on the whole DC and all of us needs a great Superman movie. That's all I want, an amazing Superman movie in my lifetime. But that's not without some worries. One, the movie is meh. That terrifies me to the point that I'm worried that this movie will come out and people will just forget about it. Two, the movie does great, but we have to wait three to four years for another one, further slowing down any more DC movies. Three, the movie ends up being standalone, and DC ends up rebooting it for Justice League movie they'll never make. Give us a good Superman movie to the point where we want to see another one. Give me Brainiac, who can match him mentally and physically. Give me the Parasite, who causes Superman to think of a different way to stop him as opposed to punching. Give me Metallo, an ordinary guy who gets an upgrade and can go toe-to-toe with Superman. Give me Bizarro, a character who is literally Superman's retarded... I mean, Superman's match. And... <laughs> sorry, somebody once said that he was Superman's retarded brother, and I thought that was really funny, and I wanted to throw it That's out. pretty much true. And uh, great, what is, it, what is it to be a human being story? Then, slowly but surely, build to Luther. I'm still waiting for more on the movie, and I'm really hoping we get an amazing Superman movie. I, too, don't want to be disappointed like I was with Superman Returns. That was so soul-crushing for me. Please don't let me Man of Steel be like that, DC and Warner Brothers. I want Man of Steel to be good. If I'm unlucky, it's a moderate success, and it goes away. If I'm lucky, maybe the world can finally see what I've seen in Superman for years. Can't say sure for sure, because I haven't seen it yet. Time's going to tell on this one. Scott and Michael, it's always a pleasure. Paul, you're a nice addition to the show. Thanks, guys, and keep up the good work. Jose A. Rivera. The only thing I have to say to that is that it was Jose's letter that, that finally made something click for me, and it was the one line right toward the end where he said, uh, if I'm lucky, maybe the world can finally see what I've seen in Superman for years. And it finally clicked for me what my biggest apprehension is with this. And it's, 
it's something I, I've been experiencing a number of times in recent years. You know, he, he ran down the, the, you know, this one, two, three of the possible scenarios with this movie. For me, there's a big old fourth one on there, and it's the one I worry about the, the, the most, is that the movie will come out and the rest of the world will love it and I'll hate it. You know, and I, I've gone through that with with the Nolan Batman films. I went through that with the with the new Star Trek, a number of different things. That's probably my biggest fear with this: is that I will feel like they completely missed the mark. Yet everybody and their brother will celebrate it as the greatest thing since the wheel, and that will just that'll suck. You know, so yeah, a lot riding on this one. A whole hell of a lot riding on this one. But that's all I got. Yeah, I pretty much agree with what Jose said uh, for the most part. So I don't have a lot to add to that. And, and I think they should yeah, remake I, the Kirk I, Allen serial. <laughs> <laughs> was that the one where he became an animated character whenever he would take off? Exa- well, he was that in Re- Superman Returns. <laughs> Sorry. So our next letter uh, is also from Jose. Do you want to read that as a continuation or do you want me to take it? You take it, sir. Okay. Hey guys, I just finished writing writing you that Superman email when more thoughts came to me. Don't you hate when that happens? Uh, yes, I do, Jose. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about news that came out of Comic-Con this, this year, how after Man of Steel, we won't get another DC movie until 2015 at earliest. This has me of two minds on the subject. One, mother expletive. <laughs> two... This better be somewhere. This this better be going somewhere. Allow me to la- elaborate on these points. When I heard that news, I was understandably frustrated. As a DC fan, it is very hard to see Marvel put out movie after movie with such great quality. DC can't seem to get get on the ball. Green Arrow wasn't what it could have been. Dark Knight Rises is is already out, and Man of Steel is so uncertain. Yes, we got three. DC movies from 2011 to 2013, but that seems more like a happy accident as opposed to something of a plan. They announced plans for a Justice League movie well after the Avengers, and I have a feeling if that movie get, ever, even gets made, it'll seem passe and many years behind behind of what Marvel is doing. And that makes me sad. I've often said DC wants to really be a player in the film game. Or if, excuse me, I've always said if DC really wants to be a player in the film game, they need to stay three. They need to slay three demons. First, producers like John Peters and Joel Silver, who see intellectual properties as opposed to fantastic movies, have to go. These these are the guys who nixed the Joss Whedon Wonder Woman movie and the David Goyer pen Flash and Supermax scripts. Second, they need to they need to be their own entity and not let Warner's Make all the decisions. Too many cooks in the kitchen gives you a rushed product that's the result of focus groups a la Green Lantern. Third, and most importantly, keep Dan DiDio, Jeff Johns, and especially Jim Lee out of it. If DC is going to make movies of their their heroes, they need to take elements from various incarnations, find out what works, and create something that'll please both comic fans and general audience. I don't want to see these three sell us their new 52 versions just so the movies can sync with comics. I'm a DC boy through and through, and it is my sincere hope that they're taking this brief time to take a look at how to make a DC universe on film 
and make it so that the movies are both great in quality and lead into something bigger should they choose to follow that model. Give me a Green Lantern movie that is set mostly in space. Give me a Flash movie where the city adores its hero and he'll do whatever it takes to help its people. A fantastic Wonder Woman movie is possible. All you have to do is get your toe out of the water and dive right in. Hell, Aquaman would be an amazing visual epic and show people while that character has why I assume it's why that character has endured. There are so many directions and tones these movies can go in that will not only introduce the characters to the general audience, but all the fans who have grown up with them and who are frothing at the mouth to see them on the big screen. Right now, DC is a veritable gold mine for characters. They just have to stop being so worried and stop and stop playing it safe, so safe, and do something. You either jump off the cliff or you get your ass off the mountain. Whew. Now that my ranting is done, there was one other thing I wanted to talk about regarding Ra's al Ghul. And I say that that way for a reason. And how it's been bugging me, how it's been bugging the hell out of me that people who have been mispronouncing the name. As long as I can remember the name, Ra's al Ghul has been pronounced Ra's al Ghul. Yet, thanks to the Nolan trilogy, people have been screwing it up, calling him Ra's al Ghul. Oh, dear God, knock it off. I feel like old Biff in Back to the Future 2 and want to shout at people, you, sh- you sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. It's like, it's like when Marlon Brando says Krypton instead of Krypton in Superman the movie. Or when people say Kal-El instead of Kal-El. It's a minor thing to complain about, I know, but it's really been driving me up the wall. You have thoughts on this? Sincerely, Jose A. Rivera. Well, I think I'm one of the biggest uh, offenders on that one, so I'll take that point first. Uh, I always thought it was Rachel Ghul, and then in the movie when they call it Ra's al Ghul, I just kind of go back and forth between the two now, and I don't know which way is the popularly accepted version anymore. Do you guys have any opinions? I don't know. I, I call him Ra's al Ghul because that's how I always assumed it was pronounced from way, way, way back when uh, when I discovered Batman with uh, Detective, whatever the hell that issue is for. I just talked about it like last episode, but it, it was the whole Bat Murderer story. That's how I always assumed. So believe me, I certainly didn't get it from those goddamn Nolan films. So if that's how they're calling him <laughs> in that, it's just an unhappy coincidence. I think in the Batman anima- animated series, I think they call him Rachel Ghoul. Yeah. But in the movie, they call him Razel Ghoul, and I, I just never knew which. I mean, it's R A apostrophe S. To me, I would have thought that would be Raz. Raz. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's, it's one of those things where the, we we really aren't given a pronunciation guide most of the time, and when we do, it's usually not for the character that we really need a pronunciation guide for. I would swear so. to God there's been an interview somewhere with, uh, who created him? Was Denny it O'Neill? O'Neill? Yeah, that, that Denny O'Neill said it was Ross Agul. I, I, would, I would swear I've heard that somewhere. I usually go with the guy that created it. Yeah, that, yeah uh, I think that's he, a good He's usually got a pretty good head on his shoulders about yeah. the Well, I can't tell you how many years I, I said Magneto. Right, yeah, I still hear that today, Magneto, and uh, I was listening to one of the more recent episodes of uh, Hey Kids Comics, and uh, and Michael was pronouncing, oh my god, what character's name was it? And he was pronouncing it funny, but I mean, it's all in how you read it, I guess, but yeah, just, to me, I mean, you know, it just, like 
like you just said, you know, it, it looks like Roz. It's R A apostrophe S. It, to me, it looks like Roz, and then Al, you know, A L. What? How? How the hell else could you pronounce that? But Al. And then the, to me, the the last part was always the mystery, not the beginning part. The G H U L. I mean, I assumed it was Ghoul or Gull. You know, I, so I always thought that was easy. Gull, you know, Razel Ghoul. That, but that was easy. It's Ghoul. Like you kick somebody in the Ghoul. Well, it could be, and I don't know exactly how old Jose is, but it could be Jose grew up with the animated series, and right. that was the first time he heard the character's name. Is that how they pronounced it on there? I don't remember. Yeah, I think it was Rach. It was yeah. Rachel Ghoul. Um. I wouldn't put an H there looking at it because, you know, it's R-A-S. Now, I, I don't know. I know that it, it translates into Head of the Demon or something like that. Right. Um, so I'm not sure if the original language puts a sh, sh sounds into the things. But I'm with you guys. I would say Ra's al Ghul. The only, th- the only thing that really drives me nuts when people say it wrong because I can even kind of get past the Magneto Magneto thing. I hate it when people say Dark Seed. Yes, yeah, that makes me. Nuts. I don't know why it drives me nuts, but it drives me up the freaking wall. <laughs> right. The one that makes me crazy is when people say Submariner. Yes, I've heard that one too. That makes me which crazy they, too. Which I think they said in that uh, abominable 1990 Captain America film when they name dropped both the Human Torch and Submariner. Oh, really? Uh, I believe the little kid said submariner, and I remember like kind of groaning at that because I'm kind of with you on that. It's just, see, I'm I'm kind of more. I, I think it's fair to say that I'm a little more laid back than you guys, and that's not a judgment call. It's just my personality. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, 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 sometimes the mispronunciation will will bother me. I hate it when people say Superman because it sounds <laughs> like you know, he should own a grocery store in yeah. downtown Brooklyn. <laughs> it's like the old. Um, like the old, uh, what is that, Daily Show joke about Phil Spiderman? Yeah. When you don't put the hyphen in there. so. But Mariner is an actual word. It's not like yes. Magneto or Magneto where it's the pronunciation of the creator. Ma- Mariner is a real word. Right. So that's, and th- and that's I think Magne- And I think he, he took Magneto from like the Magneto Drive, which is how that was pronounced. So if I'm remembering the story correctly, because Stan Lee... I don't. It's not that I don't trust Stanley. It's just when he starts out stories, I've told this story so many times that it might actually be true. It's just right. like, okay, I'm going <laughs> to go get my grain of salt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think you have to with his stories, but they're they're always so entertaining that it, well, you don't even care if they're true or not. Well, that's the thing is 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 Stanley is I am I am not one of these. I'm not a Stanley basher. I'm not. I'm not at all. Um, I, I respect the man. He's part of my childhood. Growing up, Saturday morning, hey, true believers, here's Stan Lee to show you this awesome animated thing. Um, so uh, that that that's not me making fun of Stan Lee. That's just me being honest about the situation. We have we have the picture from uh, the Comic Con this year with me and my son and Stan. And uh, I, have, I have it framed and hanging up on in the basement. And oh, wow. uh, I, I point to it, I joke around, I say, yeah, there's a picture of us with Grandpa Stan. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like he's part of the family. <laughs> He'd probably eat at your house. If Now, I know you guys are not fans of uh, the Big Bang Theory. God, they no. had They had an episode of that where uh, the character Sheldon wanted to go to a convention because Stan Lee was going to be there or some event because Stan Lee was going to be there. And, uh, 
he couldn't because the woman character got him diverted and he ended up missing out on it. So to make it up to him, she said, oh, I arranged for a meeting. And she brings him to Stanley's house, but it's never been arranged. So he comes up and he rings the doorbell and Stanley comes out and answers the door. And it, it's just, a, I found it to be a funny scene because, you know, he comes over and he starts like talking to him. And Stanley's like, who the hell are you? What are you doing in front of my house? And he calls out to his wife. He's like, call the police. It's another one of those nuts at the door. <laughs> and just to see Stanley acting out that character, I just found it to be really funny. He probably gets that too, I would imagine. Well, you know, there's probably security at his house. <laughs> you know, we, we were talking before before we went on with this, Scott and I, about uh, uh, which we've talked about in the past, where certain people who are comic book royalty, if they went out in public, you know, nobody would know who they are. Stanley is one of the very, very few people that you know transcends that. Everybody knows who Stanley is, right? So he, you know, he's a true celebrity. Him and Michael Bailey, yes. Yep. Yeah, well, goes without saying. Yeah. I mean, everyone seems to know my name at work, but I think that has something to do with the fact that I'm wearing a name tag. <laughs> uh, all right. We got time for one last email, and it's a humdinger. This one is from our buddy Andrew Leyland, and it's entitled, You Asked For It. He says, Dear Paul, Mike, and that Scott fellow. Hey, I get top listing. <laughs> he says, I have been meaning to email for a while regarding the all new, all different back to the bins. You mean all the same? <laughs> <laughs> he says, I even went to all the effort of writing notes, uh, writing notes down whilst listening to an episode. But I lost them. I used to email back to the bins all the time back in the day, but you never read them. So what was the point, right? However, Paul and Scott recently put out the plea for emails, so here we go. Warning, this is going to be rambly. First of all, let me up, uh, offer up a hearty hello to lovely new co-host Paul Spataro. Paul has Hi, been Andy. A, <laughs> Paul has been an excellent addition to the team with his laid-back delivery and sly wit. It's funny none of that makes it into the show. Though. <laughs> <laughs> all in the editing. Sly. <laughs> I love the new format, a DC, a Marvel, and an indie. And Paul's edition has given this show a different feel to other shows of the Two True Pimps feed. You have covered some excellent comics since Paul's arrival, and one of his picks, DC Comics Presents number 61, is one of my favorites of that run. He spelled favorites wrong. Not least because of the awesome Perez artwork, but because it is such a blatant ripoff of the Terminator that, in, two, in true time travel fashion, predates that movie, only in comics. It doesn't, however, predate Soldier, a second season episode of The Outer Limits that Terminator itself ripped off. Harlan Ellison, writer of that episode, took camera to court over this, so I presume his friendship with uh, Julie Swartz was why he didn't also sue DC. A small credit would have been nice, though. You know, it seems like something I was just listening to or something. They were just talking about that. Or am I imagining that? I'm not sure. We, well, Andy we and I have about, talked about this. Maybe that's what it was. And even when we did that episode of DC Comics Presents, I mean, we did talk about I think you brought it. Yeah, that. that's right. I think you might have brought that up but, now that you say that. I mean, my knowledge of Paul Nelson, and I'm not familiar with Soldier, uh, mm -hmm. But my knowledge of him from the book I read about uh, the city on the edge of forever, 
uh, he's not a guy who would be shy about coming out and saying, hey, that's my intellectual property and I want money. Right. Well, I mean, and, and the thing is, with Terminator, he didn't want money. He just wanted his credit. Right. Well, it's like me with that Superman throwing shit into the sun thing. All I want is <laughs> uh, that's all I want with that. You know, I, I'm not asking for money, but come on, acknowledge where it came from. I invented it. Anyway, okay, this is the part of his letter that I have to take exception to right here. It's where he says, "You made mention of Marvel's The Lost Generation, which you guys dismissed. No, we didn't. God damn it." This is the second piece of feedback that I've gotten about this recently. We didn't dismiss it. I'm pretty sure that I said I've always wanted to read it. Did we? Am I, I remembering I, this wrong? I think I don't remember exactly what I said, but I think my dismissal was I've never read it. <laughs> right, yeah. I have one issue, and I've been trying to find the others on the cheap. I want to read it because it actually sounds real. I mean, any time you can team these guys together, Roger Stern and, and John Byrne together, I'm there for that because it's almost always really awesome. Anyway, I, I just felt the need to correct that because I'm pretty sure that we didn't dismiss it. Anyway, he says, uh, I thought it was a rollicking fun read. Whilst it is from Byrne's fallow period, the mid-90s to the early aughts, the addition of Roger Stern as scripter uh, helped to refine the series, and I really liked the idea that as a time travel tale, you could read it uh, issues 12 to 1 or 1 to 12, depending on your whim. Granted, I uh, would need to reread it to offer a more spirited defense, and it could be that uh, compared to Chapter 1 and Hidden Years, it just seemed better, but I recall it was the best thing Byrne had done at Marvel in years. That's entirely possible, because as much as it pains me to say it, yeah, you're absolutely right. That was a fallow period is a good way to describe that time. Of course, having loved the new format, you guys go and throw it out the window for a Spider-Man special. Of course, while I don't approve of crassly and commercially whoring yourself out <laughs> to cash in on a current character's big-budget movie, really, who who is that desperate for new listeners? Yeah, what with the cashing in? I'm, I'm waiting for that check. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> These are some uh, excellent Spider-Man stories, uh, adventures, he says. Scott's pick is the culmination of Stern's run on uh, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, and shows that an awesome Spider-Man, or what, rather, an awesome Spider-Man writer and comics writer in general, Stern is. I wholeheartedly agree. Stern never treated any of the Spider-Man villains as B-list. Well, maybe the ringer. And uh, gave them all solid motivations and power sets. The Beatle was always a serious foe for me. And it bugs the shit out of me when a writer just arbitrarily decides that a villain is quote-unquote lame and treats them as such. Mark Millar, and I know you're supposed to say Miller, but I just feel the need to pronounce it that way so you know who the hell I'm talking about. Uh, did that with Electro. Uh, in his highly lauded but incredible, o incredibly overrated 12-issue run on Marvel Knights Spider-Man. Electro! The guy can fire electricity from his fingers! How is that lame? I'm going to jump in there. I agree 100% with Andy on that. I've been saying that for years. How, how they can fail to write Electro as a, you know, as a real threat is beyond me. Because his, his power set is basically the same as Magneto... It's, except it's electric instead of magnetism, which the two are related anyway. So there's no reason in the hands of a good writer that Electro shouldn't be a tremendous villain. I'm going to offer up, um, I guess you'd call it a no prize for that. Here, here's my theory on Electro, because I agree with you guys in theory. I think with Electro, I think it's all about the outfit. He just looks silly, you know? 
he just looks ridiculous with that stupid star face thing that he wears. <laughs> now, he they, they did give him a remodel, which was what I was going to suggest, and they made him look even lamer with that goofy blue outfit. But I think if you could find a look for that guy that just worked somehow, I think you're absolutely right. Because, I mean, what's lame about a guy that could electrocute you, you know, just by touching you or shooting bolts? I think that is a good idea. And it's been done with other characters. So, yeah, he should be right up there, but somehow he's just not. And I, I've gotta, I, I can only assume it's got to be that outfit. Even when you think about it, I mean, you know, the, the human brain and heart, electrical impulses, you know, control so much of it. You know, he, he could just kill people with, at a, you know, with a whim. Right. It, I'm trying to remember who wrote that. There was a uh, an issue of Spectacular Spider-Man with like a like a white cover and and Electro and Spider-Man are battling on a sign that I, I think the sign itself said you know is the logo I think it says Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man I'm trying to remember who wrote that because that was a good Electro story anyway uh, back to Andy's letter he says the origin uh, story at the back of, the, of this issue is one of the best retellings of the origin. Stern knows what to improve on, what to update, and more importantly, what to ignore. Writers run the risk of drawing attention to stuff when they overthink it. Nobody complained that Peter couldn't make web shooters until Peter David pointed it out and then collect, uh, collected fandom all started moaning about how ridiculous it was. I love Peter David, but I think organic web shooters are even dumber. And to Stern's credit, the burglar is a burglar, and it's all just a tragic coincidence. And what's wrong with that? Not, not a thing, in my opinion. Uh, Paul's choice, choice was a sublime pick. Um, uh, ASM 100 is an awesome issue. Unlike Paul, I fir- first read this in the Treasury, so the cliffhanger didn't have quite the same effect, but it is an all-time classic cliffhanger. Again, this has become another issue dissected... Uh, excuse me, I can't read tonight, apparently. <laughs> Again, this has become another issue. Disaffected fans who have forgotten that a comic should be fun point to as lame. But I tell you, when I was 10, this wasn't lame to me. Whilst I disagree with Paul that this is the most iconic cover since uh, Amazing Fantasy number 15, uh, numbers 33, 39, and 50 would all be before this one for me. It is an awesome cover, and it de- deserves its place on T-shirts around the world. I'll touch. I'll touch on that for just a moment because I was thinking about that when I read it, and it's almost like uh, ordering the surf and turf and saying, uh, you know, my lobster isn't quite as good as my flamingo, or vice versa. <laughs> yeah, we're just talking about all great covers here, uh, and while I put 100 ahead of those, Andy puts those ahead of 100. Uh, I don't think you can go wrong with any of them. In fact, uh, number 39—that's the one with Green Goblin. He has the SP to tie it up, and he's flying with them. Dragon, yeah, Dragon of Fifty is Spider-Man No More. What is number thirty-three? That's the that's one. I, I might disagree with him a little on that one. That's that's the issue where Spider-Man is underneath the debris, and he has to summon up the strength oh. to lift it off. Uh, the issue is great. The issue is awesome. I don't know yeah, if the, the cover, cover is yeah. as good as the issue. Yeah, but uh, the that that number thirty-nine. That's one of the ones. Have you guys ever seen? They have. Uh, they came out with the uh, the toys uh recreating classic covers and that's one of the ones they that they came out with was issue 39 and i have i have that on my shelf yeah that's yeah yeah i know the one you're talking about i have the one that's uh that's the fantastic four cover where where galactus and their brothers battling galactus yeah that's a great one yeah 
Uh, Andy wraps up by saying, Mike's pick of issue 400 was also spot on. Regarding the death of Aunt May, or any supporting character for that matter, if you're going to kill off an important character, whether you as a reader like her or not, May is uh, is very important to the mythos. See, I have to take exception to that. Please, Andy, write back in and explain to me how in the hell Aunt May is important to Peter Parker, because I'm sorry, I completely disagree. I think that she was just a, a, a stone around his neck for years in that title. I just, I don't get it. I, I really don't. I'm, I'm being completely serious here. Please write in and explain that to me. Uh, anyway, he says, if you're going to do that, he says, you better have a damn good reason, story, or new character lined up to replace them. ASM 400 is a very good story. Despite its problems, the Clone Saga did give Peter and Mary Jane the ending I feel they deserved. In my head, this was the end of Peter Par- uh, the Peter Parker I grew up with, and Tom DeFalco's Spider-Girl series, the logical continuation of that. To be brutally frank, I feel De- uh, Demetrius has gone to the quote-unquote kill a character well too many times now with diminishing returns, but this was an exceptionally beautiful and well-written piece of work and bringing back uh, May, or excuse me, bringing May back was just one more dumb move in a series of dumb moves uh, Marvel made with uh, Spider-Man since the mid-90s. So also, I like the new format. I would not be averse to you guys uh, doing this again with other characters. And he cites here Batman, Man-Wolf, and Brother Power the Geek, whatever floats your boat. And wish you continued success with the unsung gem of the TTF's network. And this is from Andy. And I know he was probably kidding with uh, Brother Power the Geek. I wonder if he was kidding about Manwolf because I just sent uh, him quite the uh, rambling missive myself defending the Manwolf because somebody somebody talked smack about him on Andy's show and I felt the need to defend the Manwolf. So I'm curious about that. Um. I say we do a Brother Power Geek show. Oh God! I, you know, I don't think I've ever read anything. With, well, no, I take that back. I read a, a Swamp Thing story with uh, with Brother Power the Geek in it, but I think that's the only thing I've ever read with him in it. I never have, but I may seek it out. But uh, I'm I'm going to impose my will here. I have two uh, two more emails that I'm going to put in just because they're so short. Uh, sure. One is one is from Jason Trenner. And I, I don't think you could possibly send an email that's more meaningful or on the point than this one. It says, uh, Paul's great, and I like the new format of the show. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. I agree. Paul is great. Paul is good. Let us this <laughs> And then we have one from uh, J. David Weeder. Dear sirs, J. David Weeder of Pad Smash, Green Lantern's Light, Superman in the Bronze Age, and Superman Forever Radio here. Paul is great. That's all, that is all. Wait, no, it's not. I love the new show. I think the three of you really have different speeds, like a Mozart composition. There are layers happening at all times. The random comics that that are pulled have reliably led me to new reading material, which is always appreciated. I think that I think the three of you should keep it up. Courage, gentlemen. And that's <laughs> it from J. David Weeder. Thank you again. And that's that's it for email for today. I thought I deleted those last two. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the show, folks. I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so let's see. Do we need a break or anything, guys? Or are we good to go into the, the, the body of this episode? I am good to go and ready to launch. All right. I'm good. I think you're... Who's up first? No, I think Paul's up first, right? 
We're going Marvel first, right? Marvel first, yes. Okay, well, I got the Marvel this week, and I picked Marvel Spotlight number 31, featuring Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's got a December 1976 cover date. It cost 30 cents. On the cover, there's a, a shot of Nick Fury free-falling from his flying car amidst gunshots from some near, nearby helicopters. The cover states he's back, the deadliest super agent of them all. A legion of killers stand between Fury and the Infinity Formula. The cover, while it's laid out well, it's drawn by Howard Chaikin, and I'll discuss him more later on. Uh, the title of the issue is Nick Fury, Assignment, the Infinity Formula. The script is by Jim Starlin. The art is by Howard Chaikin. The letterer is Jim Novak. Colorist is Jan Cohen, or Jan Cohen, I don't know if it's a man or a woman. And it is edited by Marv Wolfman. We open right in the action with a man in a brown leisure suit holding a brandy snifter in one hand and a pistol in another. There's a man with his back to us on his knees with a pistol to his head, pleading, and there are two men and a woman in the background who appear to be indifferent to this action. The man holding the pistol pulls the trigger, saying that he doesn't like to be squeezed and that this is where the now-dead man made his big mistake. One of the men pushes a button, button on a remote control and a chute opens, allowing the body of dead man to fall into the Paris sewer system. The gunman says that the doctor is gone and that they now have his secret, which they're going to use to make some real money. We cut to Nick Fury, who is narrating this story, and he receives a call and is told that Professor Sternberg is dead and that the, call, the caller will now be providing his Ponce de Leon serum and that someone named Madame Renoir will be their agent. Nick is clearly agitated by this and leaves immediately, telling Countess Valentina Allegra de Fontaine that he's going on a vacation. We cut to Fury on a transatlantic flight where he's remembering how he had stepped on a French mine during World War II and was severely wounded. He was found and brought to Dr. Sternberg, the man who we saw killed at the beginning of the story. It turns out that the doctor had been working on a project and used Fury as a guinea pig to test it. The doctor's home was bombed a week later, and Fury escaped back to his troop. Six months later, he received a package from the doctor containing a small inoculator. He was going to have it checked out, but woke up the following morning aged as if to 86 years old, 60 years older than he was the night before. He learned that he needed an annual booster shot to sustain the serum that the doctor had given him, and that if he failed to take it, he would age and die, and with it, he could conceivably live forever. He, he inoculated himself, he returned to normal, but the doctor extorted him for money each year. We cut back to the current day, and Fury is now in Paris and trying to see Madame Renoir. He ends up in a brawl with some henchmen, taking them out easily, and figuring that she must have hit hard times or she'd have better hired help. He enters a room, and, gives her a chip, and, and she gives him a chip, from the Golden Dagger Casino in Las Vegas, which was left for him by Steele Harris, who is apparently the guy from the beginning of the story in the brown leisure suit. And so, Nick, excuse me, and so Nick makes his way to Vegas, and we see Harris in his office in the casino saying that all those years that he was on the hook to Dr. Sternberg are now going to pay off. His plan is to use Fury's government connections to protect him while he expands his illegal act activities. As he's pontificating, the phone rings, and he's told that, that Fury is there. As Harris is telling his thugs to bring Fury in, Fury punches one of them through a door. 
and the two of them begin to discuss what's going to happen as we cut to a mysterious assailant who uses a gas gun to relieve Harris's agent of the Infinity Formula. All we see of the assailant is a pair of gloved hands. We cut back to Fury and Harris, where Harris is giving Fury his terms. As this is happening, one of the thugs is on the phone and announces that the formula has been ripped off. Harris accuses Fury and shoots at him as he jumps out of a window. He makes his way to his car, which is an Alfa Romeo Carabo, which is one of the super sports cars of the 1970s. As he leaves, he is followed by a helicopter which opens fire on him. He enters, he enters a series of buttons in the Carabo, and, Carabo, excuse me, not Carabo, and it <laughs> lifts off into the air and he jumps off of it. The car continues into the air and crashes into the helicopter, causing a huge explosion. We cut to Harris, who's watching the explosion, and sends his men over to make sure that Fury is dead. Harris leaves, and Fury takes out the men. He leaves, lamenting that he needs the formula and that he's starting to show signs of aging. He travels to the casino, where Harris is trying to figure out who took the formula, and whines that he had it all, and now he's lost it all. Fury suggests that they join forces to get the formula back, but Harris pulls a gun, saying that Fury is there to kill him. Fury disarms him by throwing a roll of silver dollars at the gun. The two of them bat hand-to-hand, and we see that Fury is rapidly aging. And then we see the same thing is happening to Harris. The shock of seeing the aging Fury causes Harris to loosen his grip, which allows Fury to flip him over a rail, where he falls through a false ceiling onto the casino floor. Because of his aged condition, nobody recognizes him, and he's listed as a John Doe, and Harris ends up just listed as missing. Meanwhile, Nick is on the floor, and Val comes running in and inoculates him. She tells him that she's noticed that he acts oddly every year at this time, and that this year she decided to find out why, and that it was she that stole the formula back for him. And we end up with her saying, let's go home and help him walk off. The narration notes that, I suddenly realized Val was one hell of a woman. Maybe she was just the kind of gal a man who may live forever should have. And that's how we end the story. Now, are you guys familiar with this one at all? No, I'd heard of this story before, but I had no idea where it was printed at or anything. But, you know, just I'd heard the broad strokes of the story that, you know, it was explained, you know, through comic book science, how Fury could have fought in World War Two and all that. You'll still be, a, you know, relatively young man in, in the modern times. So, uh yeah, I got a kick out of uh, of finally you know learning the whole story here. Yeah, I, I like that they that they explained his longevity. You know, it was one thing in 1964 and 1965 when they introduced him, and it would have been 20 years you know after the war, and he in theory would have been you know in his mid 40s. And you know, with the the silver wings at the side of his hair and everything, you know, it kind of fit. But, you know, now that we're in, or even at that time, that's, you know, 12 years later, and he'd be almost 60, and it didn't seem really to make sense that he'd be, you know, as active and as, uh, you know, as tough as he was. Right. It was good that they explained it away, I thought. I I do like when they come up with plausible reasons. I'm always amazed with uh, basically comic book science, though. It appears that aging is the first thing that gets eliminated by every superpower that people get. (laughs) <laughs> or the lack of aging. 
Right. You know, Submariner never gets old. You know, uh, Captain America has the, uh, you know, he was in the ice and he won't get old. You know, right. Nick Fury takes his formula, he won't get old. <laughs> you know, all these guys, that's, that's like the first superpower they get is the <laughs> lack of aging. Which I guess makes it easier for them to write a story. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I am not a fan of Howard Shaken. I do not like his artwork. It's too scratchy for me. I love it. I'm, you do. I'm hot and cold on on Chaykin. This I, I actually like, although it. Uh, see, I can't look at Chaykin from this from this period and not be taken right to Star Wars number one, which I don't like because I, you know, there's there's certain things I think he works really well with. Like this type of thing, you know, the the spy thriller. I guess this just works for me because really my introduction to Chaykin, you know, beyond Star Wars, was uh, when he was doing things like The Shadow and The Black Kiss <sighs> and things like that, you know. And and so I'm Black just Hawk. Yeah, so I'm just used to seeing, you know, in in my mind, you know, spy thriller you know, it equates to Howard Chaykin. So this, mm-hmm. to me, feels like his native habitat, so to speak, you know, art-wise. You know, whereas you put him on something like uh, Star Wars or um, I'm trying to think of some of the other things that he's done that just didn't thrill me. It, it just, he seems ill-suited to it. Well, recently um, he did that 1950s Avengers book. Uh, and I don't like his artwork at all for superheroes. I... I, I Agree with you that it fits better in the spy thriller. Right. He also rec- he also recently did a prequel to the Die Hard movies. Yeah. And and, and I I mean it was okay, but I, I I don't know. It just never grabbed me. Well, at at the risk of sounding like an ageist, because I I try not to make this criticism very often, because I know it's horribly unfair. But Chaykin to me is one of those artist that hasn't aged gracefully as far as his art style you know there's Mm -hmm. there's certain ones that that they just get better and better there's certain ones where their art style never changes and then there's certain ones where they just you know like we all do they just age and and their skills just aren't what they used to be shaken for me is one of those because i i saw his stuff not long ago on um on Hawk Girl, and just thought, Jesus, this is Howard Chaykin. It just looked terrible to me. Hawk Girl was not the best example of of his artwork. I uh, the first time I really remember seeing uh, Chaykin's artwork was in the Black Hawk Prestige format series. Yeah, and I loved the crap out of that yeah, story. That was nice. And then um, I read his Shadow, which I have to reread because it's been so many years. I kind of forget the finer points of it. He did a story recently. Um, well, I say recently. It was like three, four years ago. Uh, he did a 1950s Captain America story where it was the guy that thought he was Captain America mm-hmm. but wasn't. And his artwork was dead on perfect for it. Because it had a, it was a retro story, and it was kind of a spy th- thriller as well. Because that's kind of what Captain America was at the time, and I really liked that. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I see why people don't like it, uh, and I'm not a. And I'm not usually a really big art guy either. I mean, there are artists that I love, but I'm not usually a guy that's just like, oh, I just love this person's art. 
And Shaken's one of those uh, people that I just uh, give the pass on. At some point, I will read American Flag and see if it's as good as everyone says it is. And that's not like a challenge or anything. I just, I, I think that's why, that's where he made his reputation really was on that series. And I think in looking at that artwork, that is the best example of his artwork. Right. In this particular book, there are two pages that I actually do like very much. Uh, most of it I'm, I'm not crazy about, but the, uh, what is it, uh, one, two, three, the third page of the story where he goes into the flashback. Yeah. And it, I, I, I like the art there. And the very last page of the story I like. I, I just, it, I don't know if it's, if he inked it differently than he did the rest of it, because I'm pretty sure he, well, no, did he, or did somebody else? No, I don't he remember. He typically does his own inks, so yeah. Yeah, it's just so. art by... Art by uh, Howard Chaykin. So he, he, I guess he did his own inks, and it just doesn't look as scratchy to me. And I, you know, it's like a lot of these artists. I like the layouts, but I'm just not crazy. I think if you took his his art and maybe you had somebody else do the inking, then I like it. Yeah, I was actually headed the same way because if you look at uh, you look sometime take a peek at Star Wars issue one and then Star Wars issue two because Star Wars issue one he did on all on his own, Star Wars issue two he basically did the layouts and Steve Lealoha filled in everything else and mm-hmm. it's beautiful that second issue and so I think Chaykin's real strength is as a layout artist but that's not to say that I don't like his own finished stuff in certain things. Again, spy thrillers, I, I think he's perfectly suited for it. Uh, you know, for the most part, I dig this. There's, there's some rough points, and I can easily see why someone wouldn't like his art style because a lot oh, of yeah, the criticisms I hear about it are the same criticisms I have for, like, say, um, like, uh, uh, damn it, what's his name? The guy that inked Frank Miller so often. Klaus uh, Jansen. Klaus Jansen. I like or, uh, yeah, see, I like Jansen sometimes. I like I like Jansen when he's inking Frank Miller. Yeah, and you, you know what I, I I just really think stands out is I always kind of like Sal Buscema, but I always felt like his art almost has a rushed feel because he was so prolific sometimes. And there was a little run on the Defenders where Jansen was inking Buscema, and I think it's the best. Buscema's art has ever looked. Mm-hmm. If you ever yeah. get a chance to look at those issues, let me know what you think of See, them. See, Jansen might be a, might have been a bad example because Jansen, as an inker, I think is generally speaking a pretty damn good inker. Jansen, as an artist, mm-hmm. not so much. I've um, only seen very very little of his solo art. He did a Two Face story in Showcase '93 that supposedly was tying into Nightfall. And it's a god-awful story to begin with because it takes place... It's a flashback story. Batman has already had his back broken. And this is them remembering, oh, yeah, we caught Two-Face too, and here's that story. And the art in that is just absolute crap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the art he did on... Um it was a Captain America team up. I'm trying to remember who the hell he teamed up with. Maybe the Punisher. It was a prestige format thing. That, oh, I know was, what you're talking about. Awful. Blood and guts, or blood and glory, or something like blood that. Blood and glory, I think, is what yeah, it, was it was called. Yeah. Too. But uh, 
but yeah, so I mean, I, I can see that because you know, the, there's a number of you know, generally speaking, if there's if there's a common denominator amongst artists that I don't care for, it's usually this scratchy thing that usually drives me nuts. And there's a number of artists that use it, like Cuber and modern day uh, John Romita Jr. is the same thing for me. I just don't care for that very angular, scratchy kind of art style. Mm-hmm. What surprises me the most about this story is that it's written by Jim Starlin. I mean, well, nobody that goes was my out next in, point. Nobody goes out into outer space. How the hell is this a Jim Starlin story? Well, that I was wondering with that because I know Chaikin writes a lot of his own stuff. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, it's a script by Starlin. Did he write it and give a script to Chaikin, who then drew it, or did Chaikin plot it out and and draw it, and, and Starlin just dialogued it? I don't know. Huh, yeah. It's hard to tell, because... But I, I am a fan well, of Starlin, which I know you guys aren't necessarily haters, but you're not fans of the cosmic stuff. So uh, one week, I'll I'll bring something cosmic to the table, and we'll have a more in-depth discussion <laughs> See, about it. You say that, Scott, and yet he did a fantastic run on Batman. I was being After, facetious. Oh, okay. No, It, I, it was, I was a joke that fell flat. <laughs> well, did, no, he, no, he, I, no, no, no. He wrote Death in the Family, didn't he? Yeah, he wrote Death in the Family, and and I think he had, um, Max Allen Collins was the guy that wrote the issues that reintroduced Jason Todd mm-hmm. as a uh, as a like a street kid, and I think as much as I love the Jerry Conway and the Doug Mensch issues of the pre crisis Jason Todd, he was a a pretty big ripoff of Dick Grayson. I mean, just top to bottom it was the same origin and everything um and that is not me insulting those stories because i have a lot of affection for them it's just me making an observation Uh, max allen collins only did a few issues on the the revamped batman the post-crisis batman and they weren't very good they just it just kind of sucked uh poor dave cockram had to draw them and when Starlin came onto it, he brought a real '70s Batman vibe in a, in the Frank Miller era, which is why they feel kind of weird because it's the post Year One Dark Knight Returns Batman, which is supposed to be grim and gritty. Right. But uh, but he really had you know it was him with the FBI contacts and stuff like that. And I, I really enjoy his Batman run. And Death in the Family, as written, is a great story. Uh, I, I, you know, I think it, I think the quality of the writing in that story is lost in its his, in its historical significance. The other so. thing about that one is, by the time that came out, we were looking at the not quite as good Jim Aparo. Yeah, but it was still better than the 90s Jim Aparo, which is, again, something I really hate saying because Jim mm-hmm. Aparo is my favorite Batman artist. But when you get to, like, 1998, 1999, he's just not as sharp as he used to be. Nope. And I it's just completely agree. It, it, it almost makes me want to cry to say that, too. <laughs> so so my, other, my other notes on this one are I really enjoy the James Bond-type plotting. I'm, I'm a fan of the james bond movies the james bond books uh the you know the the going to paris the going to vegas you know all of that stuff i i, I just think it's cool uh i love the cool bond car that he has in it uh i i was not familiar with the carabo 
Uh, but he, he specifically says when he gets into it, you know, that's what it is. So I looked it up. It's, you know, it was a 1970s uh, supercar by Alfa Romeo. Supercar. And if you look at it, the pictures are really cool. <laughs> it's not the same kind of car as the one that Bond had in uh, Spy Who Loved Me that went underwater and shit, is it? It may be. <laughs> it might be the same one. Now, yeah. I, I didn't even think of that, but it may be. Yeah, and I'm trying to think now. Spy Who Loved Me and this would be right around the same time, within a few years of each other, I think. Yeah, I don't. I don't even think you're talking years. I think you may be talking months. Hmm. So hmm. you 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 could be. I, I don't know which one. Well, I'm assuming James Bond didn't steal its car from Nick Fury. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine it's the other way around. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say Nick Fury was uh, as the super spy was pretty much inspired by uh, by the James Bond craze, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's really funny to think that the uh, the same licensing company that handled all of DC stuff handled James Bond, and apparently there was like a 1950s DC James Bond yeah. comic book that just never was released because it was that bad. Well, he was in, what, a couple of issues of Showcase, right? Wasn't I think Bond? so. Yeah. Yeah. I think they adapted Dr. No or, or one of the early. There's definitely at least one. I, I yeah. couldn't tell you off the top of my head which one it is. Yeah. Uh, back to the artwork a little bit. Uh, Steel Harris looks, for me, in a Nick Fury story, he looks way too much like Dum Dum Dugan. Uh, and, <laughs> and when I had first seen this issue, that's who I thought it was until I read it. So I don't like that that character design for that reason. Uh, I thought it was kind of cool on page six in the first panel when uh, Nick is in his flashback to when he aged 60 years. Or uh, No, I, I don't know if it's in the... Yeah, I guess it is the flashback. And uh, he's got the white hair because he's supposed to be like 86 years old, but he still has the whiter wings at the bottom of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> just, just you know, so you could see it's still got the separation there. Uh, they continued to use the Infinity formula and continuity until very recently. Uh, I know with the uh, supposed death of Bucky in uh, Fear Itself, uh, the whole story about how he had survived that was Nick had taken the last of his Infinity formula and given it to him, uh, and that was part of the way that they were able to uh, revive him. Now, I assume they've changed the continuity a little bit, because if this story would have any uh, any weight, then a couple of months later, Bucky would age 60 years and, and <laughs> die. Uh, and also, I think they said something to the effect that the fact that Nick had been taking it for so long now, uh, his body had absorbed enough of it that he could now just age like a normal man if he stopped using it, because he no longer has any. You know, he's not going to age... 60 years of the day like he did there. Ah. Uh, the the artwork does have some very 70s style to it. The the clothing that they're wearing, the you know, guys walking around in leisure suits. Uh when he goes to Madame Renoir's room, there's like the hanging beads that you have to walk through. Uh definitely had a very 70ish feel. Uh, uh I mean it was drawn written and drawn in the 70s, but it almost feels like it's something drawn now. It's kind of kind of got that period piece. Right. Feel to yeah. It. Uh Art-wise, or the way it's just drawn, when Nick throws the uh, thug through the door, that door shatters in a way that I can't imagine you could ever shatter a door without killing somebody. 
something <laughs> in that that thug is a dead man. And that's all my notes on this one. Um. Yeah, me too. I, I had one one big one though, and it was really just thanks to you for uh, at the beginning of the story. Flip back to that page real quick. He uh, he receives that phone call. It says you will be now supplying. We uh, we will now be supplying you with your uh, Ponce de Leon serum, and that's how you pronounced it. And I just wanted to say thank you. <laughs> having uh, lived in the Atlanta area for as many years as I did, it uh, constantly drove me nuts that every time uh, there's a road in Atlanta that has that name, and every time that they would say it on the news, they would say Ponce de Leon, and it would drive me absolutely out of my friggin' mind because it's just like when I hear Ponce de Leon, I'm thinking of like that pimp from Superman the movie. I don't know why that image comes to my mind, but that's what I think of when I hear that instead of, you know, the, the Spanish explorer. So it just, yeah, it was one of those things that, uh, you know, us Brooklyn guys pride ourselves on our pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) I was just on that road Friday night. Yeah. Ponce Leon. Yeah. Leon. Does that drive you nuts, Mike, or are you just used to it? If, 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 I kind of am numb to how people say things around here. <laughs> I'm still trying to get over the fact that my father-in-law, when he says he's cutting something in half, that he says he's cutting something half in two. Oh, I... <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I figure you two have to be numb because you still sound like you're from the Northeast. <laughs> and I guess that I know a lot. You say the sweetest things. But most people <laughs> I know, if they live in an area long enough, they start to adopt you know, that quality to their... To, to their effect, and you guys don't seem to have done it, so either you're consciously avoiding it, or you're just totally numb to it, one or the other. Uh, a little of both, I would think. A little column A, a little column B. Yep. It's like good Chinese food. Yep. Well, what do you got, Mike? Did you have anything on that one? Uh, unfortunately, I did not get a chance to read it. I was looking through it as we as he was going through, uh, as he was giving the synopsis, and I, I really enjoyed it. I am not, it's kind of weird that I'm one of these like rare geeks that didn't get into things like, you know, James Bond or super spy stuff. And you can translate that into like, you know, fantasy or sci-fi or stuff like that. You know, I like, I like me some superheroes. It's not to say that I don't like other things, but if I'm going to make a choice, it'll be, you know, superhero fiction more than anything else. However, uh, you know, with with his outfit, this is very close to being a superhero anyways, because he's kind of wearing a skin-tight jumpsuit uh, that my wife giggled at when she saw it on uh, <laughs> Spider-Man, the animated series, and then asked the question, I thought he was black. Um, <laughs> but I I will agree that this isn't Shaken's strongest art, because there is kind of a wonkiness to it that I can't quite put my finger on. Uh, but I still enjoyed the layouts. It's very dynamic. You know, when he punches that guy through the door, it's the George Perez, you know, school of thought on debris. Is if you if you have a vase break, you have pieces that look like fifteen vases broke. Uh, so uh, that's what I took from that. And just 
I too, I, I'm like you guys. I like it when they explain these things. I like it when they explain it and just make it kind of simple. I don't like it when they overly complicate it. And as much as I love John Byrne, I think sometimes he goes out of his way to explain things that don't need to be explained. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad they went in the opposite direction with this one. Agreed. Yeah, I'm with you. Oh, good, because every time I criticize John Byrne, I'm afraid I'm going to get, like, the wrath of Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'll, I'm going to back up on that a little. It's uh, not that I'm not going to sit here and argue that they're good, because Lord knows they're not. But even in Andy's letter when he mentioned the hidden years and Chapter 1, while they're not good from a technical point of view, I still find them to be harmless stories that, that I don't think they're as bad as people make them out to be either. So I, I'm sure I'm in the minority on that one because everybody seems to take them as the, you know, you know somehow that, that, you know, it's the, you know, you raped my childhood argument that well, people give. No, right. I, th- I think there's a difference between the hidden years and chapter one in that chapter one was trying to retell a bunch of stories that had already been established and the hidden years was trying to fill in the gaps. So that's, that's two different ways of approaching a story because if you're just trying to fill in the gaps, then the only thing you have to worry about is brushing up against what had already trying to shoehorn your ideas into the continuity. Whereas with chapter one, and I recently reread the first issue I think the problem there is that he solved problems that didn't need solving. I agree. You know? I agree. But if just taken on their own, if you're not comparing them to the originals and getting into the, you know, the whole solving the problems that don't need to be solved, I, you know, I think they're okay to read. Uh, the biggest criticism I have with Chapter One, and Andy went into this on uh, on Hey Kids Comics one day, was I, I really never understood why he did it the way he did it, where he did like half of an issue yeah, would, would end his issues in the middle of the issue, the story he was retelling, and then in the next issue, finish that and start the next story, which was just a very weird storytelling style. Probably just trying to experiment, and not all experiments go the way you want them to, so I did, I, you know, when he said that, I had remembered it, because I had completely forgotten that he had done that, and then I remembered it, and it's just like, oh yeah, that that was, that wasn't good. Yeah, so. and 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 when I read it at the time when they were coming out new, that bothered me. Now, if you sat and read them, you know, in in consecutive order, and you're reading one issue after another, it doesn't really matter anymore, because you you know you're not waiting a month to get to that next part. This this is true, and that I think we could do a whole episode on the differences in reading a story as it's coming out monthly and waiting for it and the reading it all in a chunk and how the different ways you can read a story like that change your perception of how the story is uh, or how, how much you like it. Because if you re- sometimes if you're reading something monthly and it's not quite clear, you hate it, but then go back a couple years later and read the whole thing through and you're like, oh, well, that was better than I remembered it because, you know, it's it's just the problems with continued storytelling in general and how you can mess it up completely. Sure. And then you even have the opposite sometimes where, you know, where you have a great cliffhanger and it's really, really great because of that having to wait 
a month right. to mm-hmm. resolve that cliffhanger. Whereas when you're reading it in a trade and it's you know just resolved on the next page, it kind of takes that suspense away. Mm-hmm. I agree. So what do you got, Scott? Well, my book, which was chosen by a random number generator, is going to take us back to March, April 1969, a time when I uh, still had a valid excuse to wet myself because I was only one year old. Um, Man soon would, but had not yet walked on the moon for reals. And on the radio, Tommy Rowe was making us dizzy was the big song. This is DC Comics Tomahawk number 121. Cover, gorgeous cover, by the way, by Neil Adams, which is the one and only reason why I snagged this when I rescued it (laughs) from the uh, deep discount bins at uh, Titans. Uh, This was the Titans near Cumberland Mall in Hotlanta, Georgia. This was a long time ago. This was years and years ago. Since that time, it's been sitting unread, awaiting its ch- its uh, chance to possibly one day wow and impress me. So uh, here we go, Tomahawk 121, don't let me down. So as I said, a uh, cover on it by Neil Adams, and it depicts um, the character Tomahawk, and he's, uh, he's your typical, I mean, this guy, he could be Captain America, he could be any... You know, statuesque, Superman-esque, blonde-haired hero. The the only thing that kind of distinguishes him is uh, he's got, you know, longer sideburns and uh, and his outfit. You know, very much a, 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 a you know like a Davy Crockett style outfit is all ripped and tattered and everything. He's kind. It's almost a uh, it's almost the Crisis Number Seven Supergirl cover in a lot of ways, and he's holding. A dead Indian in his arms, and he's saying, "What have I done? I killed an Indian boy." And uh, it's it's a really dynamic cover. He's standing uh, in the midst of looks like this desert, and he's got his horse in the background. It's a uh, uh, like a uh, like a orangey, pinky sunset or sunrise behind him. It's a really dynamic cover, though. He himself is uh, kind of in shadow as he's turned to to us with the sun behind him. Very, very dynamic cover. And like I say, totally the reason I picked this one up. Original cover price, by the way, 12 cents on this one. So inside, there are two stories, both with art by uh, Frank Thorne, who uh, personally I'm not familiar with at all. And uh, originally I was going to touch on both stories, but really I want to focus on the primary story, the, the, the first story in here. And that one's written by Bob Kaniger, and it's entitled To Kill a Ranger. And it begins with an arrow narrowly missing Tomahawk while he's out and about. And he sees a feather moving in the brush and he fires, killing an Indian boy. And it plays out. What? It's the end. <laughs> it plays out just like the scene on the cover, you know, minus the stunning Adams art, of course. Tomahawk carries the boy to his people, and actually he just walks for miles and miles, is what it says in the, the caption box here, until he stumbles across them, which is kind of odd in itself. Turns out this is the chief's son, and the chief is understandably pissed about it. Tomahawk surrenders himself to tribal justice, but the chief 
Well, he's kind of a sly one. He wants Tomahawk to suffer as he himself is suffering. So he lays it down this way. Tomahawk is going to go back, and he's going to kill one of his own men. The chief doesn't care which one, but he wants him to kill one of his own men as payback for having killed his son. If he doesn't do this, the chief and his people are going to go on the warpath, and the settlers hereabouts will pay the price for Tomahawk's defiance. Oh, okay, so you follow me so far on this? We're with you. All right. Well, this now it's a Robert Kaniger story. I'm lost already. All right. Well, this is where this story gets totally stupid. So you've just been warned. Instead of agreeing uh, to this insane plan and then just <laughs> going and rousing every able-bodied man, woman, and child to defend their homes and land, Tomahawk actually goes through with the chief's plan. He sets a trap, and he waits for one of his men to stumble into it. And then he leaves him hanging there in the trap after a very convenient panther attack. Don't don't ask, because it just doesn't make sense, and I can't make it make sense. So next, he causes a rock slide, intent on crushing one of his own men to death. <laughs> As it's happening, he starts to f- kind of feel funny about that. So at last moment... He rescues the guy. As if all that's not silly enough. All right, my real issues with this story start in the next part, when, in classic Silver Age style, the members of Tomahawk's team... Now, keep in mind that these guys are all horrible stereotypes. You know, right, think of, like, the 18th century version of the Blackhawks, and you pretty much get the idea of what this team is like. They instantly realize what is happening. Now, you would have to be a friggin' psychic to understand <laughs> what's going on here, but these guys, they've got it figured. You know, just, just two little incidents, and they've already got it all figured out, that their buddy, their chum, their comrade, that they're perfectly willing to lay their life down for, but he's gone off the deep end, so we got to take him out. It's... So how how they figure this out is beyond me. It, it really it, in this aspect it really plays like an old Legion of Superheroes story. Anyway, they set a trap for Tomahawk. They capture him, and he spills the beans. It's, it basically comes down to sorry, fellas, I gotta off one of you. You know, no, 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 nothing personal. So what happens next made me use up my entire remaining quota of eye rolls for the entire rest of the year because in a three-quarter page splash these assholes literally go round robin volunteering to be the one to lay down their life to settle tomahawk's debt with the chief while they're actually arguing about this like which one of them deserves the honor the chief just pops up out of the grass, and he says that he's been tailing Tomahawk the entire time. Time's up. He didn't fulfill his mission. So, you know, the chief's got to carry through on his threat. Um, except that he doesn't carry through on his threat at all. He instead decides to take Tomahawk's life as payment for his boys. Now, is that not what Tomahawk offered to him in the first place? It's exactly what he offered. He said no, and he came up with this ridiculous plan instead. 
So these two guys, they they go all Anakin and Obi-Wan on the side of this cliff, and they're beating the hell out of each other and everything. And, of course, the chief falls off the mountain, and he splashes into this raging river below. Now, if it had been me, I'd be like, call that shit a day, head to the saloon, get yourself some brew and a whore and, you know, whatever. <laughs> this dumbass actually dives in after the chief. He risks not only his own life because, you know, by the art, this is one hell of a dive that he pulls off. You know, there's rocks and everything else. He dives in. He actually endangers everybody, his entire team, because then they have to link arms and wade out into the middle of the river for this, you know, last-minute daring rescue from the edge of some waterfalls. It almost takes everybody over, but they do manage to rescue Tomahawk, and they rescue the chief. And the chief says, hey, you know what, Tomahawk? You know, you're not such a bad Joe after all. Tell you what I'm going to do, he says. <sighs> Wait for it. I'm going to let you live. No hard feelings. You know, you saved my life. You know, everything's cool. You know, feel free to drop by and kill anybody you want in my tribe from now on kind of thing. It's All right, so he didn't say this part, but he might as well have. The story closes with Tomahawk commenting to his men, that uh, that boy's eyes will haunt me for the rest of my days. And his stereotypical big guy member of the, of the team, Big Dope or whatever the hell his name is, says, <laughs> it'll take time, Tomahawk, but maybe you'll forget it. Just maybe. <sighs> he you killed think his name was child? Really big Dope? Huh? I said, do you think his name is really Big Dope? I don't know. I didn't bother to even <laughs> collect names on this. Thing. They're all, like I said, they're just all stereotypes. But, I mean, he killed a kid, for God's sake. And at the end of the story, the guy's like, ah, don't worry. With a little time, you'll forget all about it. It's like, What's no, the date this, on this? Uh, 69. March, uh, Dude. April 69. Dude. Hmm? You said 69. I always follow that up with dude. <laughs> the second story in here, which I didn't write up a synopsis or anything, um, it's not a lot better. It's a little better. Um, there was one major moment in that story that, you know, you, you could probably read it and maybe not even catch it. But it's one of those things that if you if you linger long enough on this story, suddenly there's there's just a point in it where you're like, wait a minute, how the hell does that work? Um, but bottom line is, neither one of these stories, you know, were were anything at all to write home about. Now, my knowledge of Tomahawk is solely informed by his appearance in the Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, specifically. Um, Fury of Firestorm, hi Shag, number 42, where uh, Firehawk and Wonder Girl of the New Teen Titans, they went into one of those wonky time distortion zone things or whatever they were called that popped up during the crisis. And they actually go into this thing and they wind up back in Revolutionary War days where they met up and teamed up with Tomahawk and Dan Hunter for this one adventure. That's all I knew of this guy, but it was enough to whet my interest for the character, you know? And, uh, you know, based on that one entry, or, you know, that one uh, adventure, rather, you know, I kind of long looked forward to uh, to learning more about this guy, because that, that era intrigues me, and, and those style of adventures sounded kind of interesting. And, you know, the, the entries I've seen online for this guy, it says, um, this is kind of what it 
what I took away from it, it says uh, known as either Tom Hawk or Thomas Hawkins, depending on which of the two versions of his public published history the reader prefers. Tomahawk was a soldier who served under George Washington in the warfare between the British, French, and Iroquois forces during the decades prior to the American Revolutionary War and acquired his nickname due to its resemblance to a trademark uh, weapon of the Iroquois Confederacy's warriors and the skill he developed with that weapon. He subsequently achieved fame as one of Washington's most capable operatives during the revolution itself leading a band of soldiers under the uh, informal nickname of Tomahawk's Rangers. Sounds pretty exciting. I mean, it sounds like good stuff. Um, this? <laughs> Frankly, it sucked. <laughs> I was horribly disappointed. I, I'm really hoping that maybe I just got a bad issue or something. Now, the, the title folded not long after this. One issue, like 140, I think. So, I mean, it, it wasn't around a whole lot longer. Maybe it was just running out of steam by this point. I really don't know. Like I say, beyond crisis, this is my sole exposure to this character. But uh, I, you know, I'd hoped for a little more. Um, it really turns out that the reason I bought it, the stunning uh, Adam's cover, is the one redeeming quality of the issue. That and it had a couple of cool ads in it. It had an ad here for um, giant size. This was an issue of Action Comics. Action Comics number three seventy three was a was a giant size all Supergirl issue, which looks pretty cool. I don't think I actually own this issue, but. I really like the uh, the ad on that. And there was one other in here that now I can't even remember what the hell it was. Oh, it was for the, uh, was these action figures, the Zeroids. The Zeroids are here from the planet Zero. <laughs> the incredible atomic Well, one would hope. Space. <laughs> and they, uh, yeah, there are some freaky looking robot guys uh, from Aurora. But uh, yeah, that, that was pretty much it. I mean, really nothing to write home about. The art is... Um, the art's okay. I mean, I don't know Frank Thorne from nobody, but, uh, you know, the art's serviceable. It's nothing dynamic. Yeah, that's pretty much all I got on this one. I When, when you said you were going to do this one, I tried to see if I could find something on it. The only thing I did find was the cover, and I agree with you. The cover, yeah, I mean, it's Neil Adams. How, how wrong can you go? Right. Uh, my experience is not... What was that? Expanding Earth. That's how you. Well, can I'm, go talk, wrong I'm just talking about work. I'm talking <laughs> okay. about theories of the universe. Uh, <laughs> we could we could do ten episodes on Neil Adams' theory of the universe. I think. I want to uh, walk up to Neil Adams at a convention and just go, "Don't talk, draw." <laughs> <laughs> just he gave me life advice. Who? Somebody was saying. Uh, oh, was uh, Where Monsters Dwell? Did you hear that show? No, uh, they they actually they're in uh, they're in Canada. They do a radio show and then they put it up on iTunes. And one of them said he was at a uh, convention. Neil Adams was there. And oh no, it wasn't Where Monsters Dwell. I'm sorry, it was uh, it was the show that they they kind of work hand in hand with. I can't even think of what the name of it is offhand. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know the one you. I can't think of the name of it either. I do. I do know the one you're talking about though. I. I but whatever the case may be, the, the guy said he went over to Neil Adams and, you know, he was all ready to, like, engage him in, you know, you know what are you, crazy with these theories and all of this stuff? And, and he started uh, talking to him about uh, Batman Odyssey and, you know, saying, you know, what, what the hell is going on with this book? And he, and he basically, he said Neil Adams was so engaging 
and willing to discuss and kind of go through and explain what he was thinking and everything, that it just kind of took him off of the whole confrontational attitude. And, you know, within a couple of minutes, they, he was like, oh, yeah, okay, I see exactly what you're talking about now. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, one thing I understand is if you, you know, if you want to talk to Neil Adams about Neil Adams, he's willing to do it whether you're talking positive or negative. But uh, my experience with Westerns is that in that day and age, they were usually just so simple and stereotyped in the right. storytelling that, you know, the, the Indians were the savages, the white man were the good guys, uh, and then the pendulum swung too far the other way eventually, where it was, you know, the Indians were all noble and, you know, nobody was evil in the Indian tribe. And the white man came in and were just slaughtering people. And it wasn't until more recently that they kind of showed, you know, there's good and bad on both sides of the uh, right. equation. So I, I find that the early Westerns or the earlier Westerns, are just, sometimes they're a little painful to read because they're just so oversimplified. And, See, uh, I've been spoiled by years of reading Jonah Hex. So this, it, it was kind of hard to put, uh, you know, because I tried to look at it that way because the probably, and I totally failed to uh, to to write this down in my notes. I'm glad you you brought this up. Was the whole thing with with how the Indians are portrayed in this? That was actually shocking to me in this story. You didn't get it so much in the in the first story, but in the second story, um. They're villains with no redeeming qualities. They're they're setting out to destroy um, a fort, you know, a, a, a soldier fort. And, uh, I, I, and I'm, I, sure, I, I'm sure it was a a fort where they had no vicious, you know, intent towards the Indians. It was live let live as far as they were concerned. I I, I don't know. I I didn't get that sense of it one way or the other. But it was just I struggled to find motivation. Because, you know, I mean, if, if you're going to present a story of a struggle of, you know, one side versus another, I just, I like to get, you know, I mean, I don't need it like in a super villain story. I mean, I don't care why Doctor Doom wants to kill the Fantastic Four. Just give me the story. You know, I mean, it, it's a given. He's the bad guy, you know. But in something like this, I wanted to know why are the why are these Indians all pissed off? Why are they trying to burn the fort down? You know, is it on their, like ancient burial grounds they just don't like white people what the hell's going on with this story and you get none of that it's just they're the bad guys they're they're there to, to burn the fort down and then they you know tomahawk and his people have to defend the fort kind of and i'm like all right i'm sorry i, I need more you got to give me more here I'm, I'm not figuring this out you know i mean do, do these kind of people have a legitimate beef i don't know which side to root for in this battle and it was just so simplified that these were just ignorant savages that just needed to to die. I was like, wow, you know, it, it was really hard to put my mind back to what the sensibilities must have been back then when that it was as simple as that, I guess, you mm -hmm. know? And that was one of the reasons I never really dug on westerns as a kid. My dad was huge on westerns. I just never really got into them. And I, I think a lot of it was for that is that I don't know. I just needed something deeper or something. I don't know what I expected going into that. For one thing, I by everything I'd read, and, and of course, you know that that one uh, uh, adventure in uh, in Fury of Firestorm, I expected that this guy was going to be out battling redcoats. I didn't realize he was going to be battling Indians. You know, I didn't see him as an Indian fighter. 
I, I can't help but wonder if if maybe Davy Crockett or something was some sort of influence on this book to where maybe it shifted at some point from him being you know, a revolutionary war hero to an Indian fighter. I, I just a guess, but I mean, I, I was kind of lost with that. There's not even any mention of the British in this. So I don't, I don't know. It just wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, two things. One, it's a story written by Robert Canninger who would <laughs> right. write a story. And basically you read them and you realize you're reading a story of a man who is making it up as he goes along. Right. Now everyone makes it up as they go along, but usually people are like, okay, I'm going to have a story. Hero's going to meet up with villain. They're going to have a misunderstanding. It's going to lead to a thing. It's going to lead to this. And I got to get from point A to point B to point C to point D. Canada didn't work that way. He said that if you basically paraphrasing, um, what I read in Gerard Jones and Will Jacobs comic book heroes, you know, if if you thought about what you were going to write before you wrote it, you aren't a writer, you're a typist. So <laughs> take it what it will. When we covered Lady Cop on this show, <laughs> it was just obvious to me, he's just making this shit up as he goes along. Right. Compounded with that, and I, and I, and I don't know if you guys feel the same way that I do, I have found when I read about a character in, like, Who's Who, or see a more modern day, because I, I, I think... Uh, um, it's fair to say that Fury of Firestorm is not a modern book anymore. <laughs> it feels like it, but it's not. Uh, but when you see a character like that in a modern setting, you're seeing a mo- contemporary writer taking, doing their perception of that character. Right. And I think it builds up in your head that these original stories must be epic. Now, it's not that in every case the stories themselves are bad, because sometimes the stories are just fine. It is the what you what you want out of a story is completely different. What we want out of a Justice League story is completely different than a 10-year-old in 1965 right. wants out of a Justice League mm-hmm. story. And I think I think both of those were kind of against you from the beginning. Mostly Canager, who's batshit crazy right. um, when it comes to writing stories. But also, you know, from listening to you, it's just like, well, I thought Tom Hawk was going to be this awesome character. It's like... I don't know, outside of Jonah Hex, I don't know if I ever want to read another El Diablo or Batlash yes. or, or any of those after, after listening to JLA Trail of Time, you know, which was just an excellent right. novel. Well, I, don't see, know, that, I, don't, I don't know if I want to go back to those people. <laughs> see, I, I, you know, granted, I, I don't have much experience or, or exposure to other Western characters outside of you know the 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 issues of say weird western or jonah hex that that jonah you know once jonah came along so i i feel like i'm judging all other westerns unfairly by comparing them to him but every time i do stumble across something like that i am left with the same thing as now i see why jonah was such a big friggin deal when he came along because this is this is this kind of stuff that was coming out and i'm just I, I, it shouldn't have surprised me as much as it did, but it really did. It surprised me, and it's just plain damn silliness. And a lot of it is, at, at my age and having read now thousands and thousands of comics, I have found that I have just lost my tolerance for comics that were obviously written with the attitude of, ah, to hell with it, it's for, it's for kids. You know, they, they, 
what the hell do they know? You know, and, and some comics just feel that way. A lot of, like, say, uh, Silver Age Legion that feels that way to me. Like, oh, they're not going to stop to think how completely friggin' retarded this is. They're just going to read it and enjoy it. You know, it's guys in, in long underwear flying around beating up aliens and shit. They're not going to care that this story makes not a lick of goddamn sense. Well, I'm sorry. I'm 44 years old now, and I see when, a, when, when I get to a point in a story where I just have to stop and go, what the hell did you just say? It takes me right out of the story, and I have the toughest time getting past it. And that happened in this story. When I realized that Tomahawk was actually going to listen to this asshole and go try to kill one of his own men, I was like, wait a minute. This, this doesn't make any sense at all to me. I was like, no, come on. Why, you know, the, the other thing that always annoys me is when I can think of a better way out of this situation than the hero. That never happened when I was a kid. When Batman got tied up by the bad guy and was going to get dipped in the boiling acid, I was like, holy shit, how's he going to get out of that? You know. <laughs> now I'm at an age where I can think of 20 different ways that Batman could get out of it. I hate when that happens, and this story was like that for me. You know, Instead of going off to kill one of your own people, which is absolute insanity... I mean, why not just pull a Paul Revere and ride into town and wake all the settlers up and say, hey, the Indians are all pissed off about something. I don't know what they're all pissed off about. But they're pissed <laughs> off. <laughs> you might want to grab your, your gun and be ready for when they come down the hill. You know, instead of doing that, he's actually going to kill one of his own people. I'm like, no, come on. This does not happen in real life. You know, he is a really bad administrator. Is, is what I'm saying. He should not be in charge of anything. It's, it's like, you know, we've all worked retail. You know that one manager that just makes the worst decisions possible all the time. And it's just like, why is this jackass in charge? Well, what's funny, too, is that, you know, it would be weird enough if this was the one story in this book. And then next issue, you know, it's a month later, maybe two months later, if it's a bi-monthly thing, whatever. Maybe you forgot what happened in the issue before, but by this being the first story in a two, you know, in the book and with with two stories in there, you know, I look at that second story and how it starts with everybody being all chummy. And I'm like, did these people just forget that like a half an hour ago he was trying to figure out which one of them he was going to bump off? Like, which one of you guys don't I like? You know that. I mean, why would they ever follow him again into any mission whatsoever? They would all have to be thinking of, you know, the the, the popularity contest mentality now. It's like, man, I better stay on Tomahawk's good side because the next time he kills an Indian boy, I might be the one that has to pay the price for it. You know, it's oh, it's it's so silly. You know, boss, I like you a lot, but your your managerial skills, you know, need improvement. Ah. <laughs> uh. Oh, my God. I mean, I guess I should get a kick out of it, you know. And I do in a way, but I'm... I'm more... No, it's more fun to rip it apart, sir. I'm just, I'm, <laughs> Let's I'm, be fair. You know, I'm just so disappointed by it is the big thing. Normally, I would read something like this and just be all like, well, that was just damn silly. And in this case, I'm like, well, that sucked, you know. So, <laughs> I, don't know. I was bummed. I thought it would really be good. Cover's nice, though. Yeah, the cover is really nice. But, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, half an hour ago he was trying to kill them. But 15 minutes ago they were arguing over which one of them was going to let him kill them. Oh, that was the worst. That was <laughs> the worst. So why would they be angry? 
it is almost the entire page and it's a panel of these people just standing around and every one of them in a different way is saying the exact same thing kill me and it's like how can you write that and publish that and expect anybody to take that seriously it's it's completely silly and ridiculous you know it's those scenes to me stretch my credibility when it's the scene of like all right, one of us has got to stay behind or, you know, one of us has got to fly the airplane into the Nazi death trap and is probably not going to come back. You know, it's enough of a stretch for me with those stories. But when it was something like this, like the boss screwed up and now I've got to die to cover that. Mis- no, no, I just no. I'm sorry. I don't buy that at all. I'd be like, you're on your own, dude. Solve your own. No, no, no. Something about this doesn't add up at all. No. <laughs> Uh, but I've beat a dead horse or a dead Indian in this case. So, uh, who wants to take it? Oh, it's Mike's turn. Yes, it is. And I have, I have a comic I am going to dedicate to our good friend, Luke Giaconetti. Because <laughs> Luke, Luke and I are both children of the eighties. And round about the early part of the aughts, uh, there was a resurgence for the eighties that sent, back issue and toy prices going through the roof as every comic book publisher was trying to cash in on people rediscovering their long-lost loves as children. One that I was particularly looking forward to uh, came out on... You just can't pick a day like this, and I'm not trying to make light of this. I'm really not. And I'm not going to get political with this at all. But, you know, when terrorists attack your country uh, and anger you feel at that, you you want something that will give you some kind of release. So on September 12th, 2001, when I walked into my comic shop and G.I. Joe, a real American hero, number one, was in my box waiting for me, (laughs) I went, hell yes. And that's the closest I'm going to get to political subtext on this show. So this is G.I. Joe, Real American Hero, number one. It is put, It was put out by Image Comics, but it was uh, through Devil's Due, which would eventually uh, start publishing the comic themselves. But at first they went through Image. This is Reinstated, part one of four. I hope I pronounced this right. Josh Blaylock, story and layouts. Steve Kurth pencils, John Larder inks, high-colored... Uh, hi-fi color designs it's color with a u uh colors and the cover was by j scott campbell and we opened on a ninja type character who has a tattoo very similar to what snake eyes wears spying on the dreadnoughts who are talking about their new leader who is actually the daughter of zartan he takes this information and he brings it to the silent master so that the Silent Master can bring it to his people. The Silent Master turns out to be Snake Eyes, who delivers the information to Duke, who is very happy to hear from his old friends and sa- friend and say, I'll meet you in a few days. We cut to Duke in a debriefing, talking about the fact that, hey guys, not only is Cobra back, but Cobra Commander is back in all his hooded glory. So G.I. Joe is back in action. He tells his men to basically suit up and get ready for it. 
because they are going to get reacquainted with some old friends, and those old friends are Zorana, Tomax, Zamot, Destro, Cobra Commander, the Baroness, the Crimson Guard, Zartan, Doctor Mindbender, Firefly, and Major Blood. Outside, uh, Shipwreck and Roadblock and Flint talk about how great it is that everyone's together again. Snake Eyes and Scarlet have a moment, and by have a moment, I mean they stare at each other for five panels before Scarlet slaps him across the face. So we cut to uh, Cobra Commander basically laying out to his people, including Zartan and Dr. Mindbender and Tomax and Zaymon and the Baroness, that basically he's gotten his shit together with his whole terrorist thing. Because, oh my god, there's people around this world that hate America, and we're going to bomb the shit out of them. So I have come up with this great, awesome thing called the first true nanomachine. And when he's in the middle of his sales pitch, somebody comes in and knocks out uh, one of Cobra's men, and it turns out to be Destro, who's basically like, dude, what up? I'm back, and um, you're going to need my help. So where do we go from here? Meanwhile, all across the United States, former members of the Joes, including Stalker, Gung-Ho, Wild Bill, Lady J, Dusty, Mainframe, Rock and Roll, Jinx, Spirit, and a very fat bazooka are all called in, uh, called back to duty. Cut to G.I. Joe headquarters where General Hawk, who is upset at uh, the fact that sometimes he is referred to as General Tomahawk, more on that in a minute, is addressing the troops, and we are introduced to the guy, the ninja from the beginning of the story, who is Kamakura, who is Snake Eyes' disciples. They give him the pep talk and basically, hey guys, we're going to go kill us some Cobras. Meanwhile, uh, back at uh, Cobra Commander headquarters, Cobra Commander and Destro are doing their usual arguing thing, and it seems that Cobra Commander has won this particular pissing contest. Cut to uh, Flint, Roadblock, and Shipwreck talking about how great it is to be back together again, and we get to hint at why Snake Eyes and Scarlet are no longer together. Cut to Cobra Commander about to get it on with a couple women, including a very hot African-American girl who knees him in the crotch, kicks him in the face, and that's when Destro walks in and says, Bitches, I'm in charge. And at the very end of the issue... Cobra Commander finds himself surrounded by the Crimson Guard going, but how? What? What is the meaning of this? Luke could do a better impersonation of that than I could. And then it says, to be continued. Um, as far as reintroducing G.I. Joe uh, into comic books, this was an interesting mix of the animated series and the Marvel Larry Hama written series. In fact, it's dedicated to Larry Hama. Uh, as a story now, I really don't think it lives up to what Larry Hama did with this team. This really reads like fan fiction. Uh, I had the same problem with the Dreamwave Transformers series as well, where you have people that obviously love the property and are trying to ape it to the point where they're not trying to bring really anything new to it at this point. The series would eventually improve, and I really liked this first issue when it came out, but I think it's because it had that kind of new car smell to it, and everything else that was going on at the time, you're like really excited about it, and then later you go back and reread it and go, God, I'm glad this got better. Because the Devil's Do G.I. Joe series was freaking awesome. 
it really got good really quick, especially uh, when they eventually would change writers. I think the biggest detriment of this story is the artwork. Um, there is an overabundance of scrunchy heads in this storyline, <laughs> or in, in this issue, where everyone looks just kind of weird. It's this weird cartoony style. And when I say cartoony, I don't mean like Saturday morning cartoon. I mean kind of... Uh, like J. Scott Campbell on acid, basically. Uh, the storytelling kind of sucks. You can really tell where pages are statted. And like like the page where Scarlet slaps Snake Eyes, it's literally five panels of the same thing. I hate that. And when it's done to a comedic effect, it's kind of funny. But this is a highly charged emotional scene. These are two people that obviously that, that were in love at one point, and obviously that has gone horribly awry. So this is her expressing that to him. And what I would have preferred is like her kind of stewing for five panels, where the facial expression changes, where you see her getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And no, it's just her staring at him dull-eyed, and then she slaps him. Um Flint looks like shit throughout this entire issue, uh, as do Tomax and Zaymont. Baroness, who is supposed to, be, is supposed to be hotness and black leather and a cobra symbol on her chest, has this ugly pointed chin. The artwork, on most cases, just freaking sucks. Destro looks like, this is going to sound weird, Destro looks like an action figure. <laughs> he doesn't look like a person in an outfit. And yes, I know the G.I. Joes were action figures, but you don't want to see the action figure in the comic. You want to see as realistic as within the confines of comic book artwork can get you. I don't want like a Neil Adams G.I. Joe book, but I also don't need like halfway to Sergio Aragones uh, drawing G.I. <laughs> Joe. And that's nothing against him because he's actually a really good art artist. The storytelling in this art just freaking sucks ass. It is just... I am surprised I liked this as much as I did. I was just, I guess I was just blinded at the time. Um, I really should have picked an issue later in the series because eventually, like I said, it got good. And it, and there was a certain point where a, a writer I usually hate, Joe Casey, came onto the book and did this great story where slowly but surely Cobra Commander replaced all of the Joes or, or insinuated himself into such a position where he basically shut down G.I. Joe from within, if I'm remembering the story correctly. And it was just like, wow, that's really freaking cool. Because I love G.I. Joe. I really do. Uh, when I was a kid, I loved the cartoons. I really can't watch them as much anymore because the writing is so silly. But the Larry Hama series was pretty much great from the get-go and only got better as it went. It had its low points, but I think we can all agree, uh, which is something I don't usually say very much, but I think we can all agree that when somebody writes 150 issues of something, there's going to be points where you're like, can, can we get back to when it was good, please? Right, yeah. Uh, and it's just the nature of the beast. I'm sure Tomb of Dracula was like that as well, because God knows New Teen Titans was yep. uh, with Wolfman's uh, writing. Um I, I will admit that when they're calling everyone back to duty, uh, I said duty, um, when they're calling everyone back to duty, the one funny part is Philip security here, uh, Kratzenbogen. Oh, wow. 
is there any sort of physical fitness and test involved? And you realize that Bazooka is a fat security guard now. <laughs> and you kind of feel bad for him. Uh, the tomahawk gag. This is one. This is a one percenter. Because in the late 90s, they brought G.I. Joe back. But the people that were bringing it back had lost the rights to some of the names of the characters. Which can happen. And so instead of General Hawk, they called him General Tomahawk. And I like the fact that they make fun of that here. Um, that's pretty much all I have. Uh, I I, re- I picked this expecting that I was going to be sitting here telling you the virtues of Devil's Do G.I. Joe series, and I just picked the worst issue to do that with. <laughs> good job. Yeah, good on me. Though it is the hooded Cobra Commander, and as much as I like the silver face mask, I have always preferred Hooded Cobra Commander. I just think it looks neater. The figure did, at least. It's funny, because your synopsis um, was full of a lot of energy, so it sounded like you were really into the issue. So it's funny that when you got to the notes portion, it was like, okay, this sucked, and here's why. Because <laughs> that didn't come across in your synopsis. So that's very that's very funny. Sorry. <laughs> Now, see, I, as a kid, I grew up where G.I. Joe was a person rather mm-hmm. than a team. Cool. So I was always wondering, did they ever incorporate, you know, was there ever a story, whether it was a flashback yes. or anything, with the, like, Kung Fu Grip G.I. Joe? He was on up? the team. He was. Yeah, he is actually going to be in the new movie, too, that's coming out next year. Oh, uh, Played by Bruce cool. Willis. Bruce Willis oh, cool. is playing Joe Colton. Um, oh, cool. they, they eventually brought him and and basically G.I. Jane, uh, who was the nurse. They brought him. Hama brought him in like the later. Luke can correct me on this because it's been so long since I've read it. But it was like in the like the seventies or eighties of the book. They brought him back, and it was around the time they were celebrating the anniversary of G.I. Joe. So it made sense, and they they. Um, they would eventually do like a Legends of the Dark Knight series for G.I. Joe called G.I. Joe Declassified, mm-hmm. uh, where they did something with him as well. Actually, it's really interesting. Larry Hama wrote that first Declassified story, and it was basically the adventure right after the last issue of Marvel's G.I. Joe. And in the middle of it, you have... And this actually was very poignant. You had a firefighter standing under... Uh, the World Trade Center going, if something happens here, we don't know what we're going to be able to do. And it was just wow. like, holy shit. And it was just a great way to to kind of call back to that uh, and, and, and not do it in a way that seemed crass, you know? When you can do it like that, you're a good writer. Um, I'm also just really energized because it's 3.30 in the morning and I hit my fifth wind, so... Uh, <laughs> So, uh, but uh, I am so sorry that I could not find copies of this for you guys to read. And on the other hand, I'm really glad I didn't find copies for this to read because uh, it because it really it wasn't it wasn't the shining example of this version of GI Joe. Yeah, sadly, my GI Joe experience is like Scott's, where it was a twelve uh, inch figure that you had from the seventies or even the sixties. Uh, by the time they came out with the six-figure line, six-inch figure line, uh, you know, I was too old for that. So I never really read the original Marvel series. I never watched the cartoon. Uh, my only experience with GI Joe was, uh, you know, a couple of years when I took my son to see the movie, and 
because I had no connection to the story, I found the movie to be entertaining. Whereas I know a lot of people who had background with the original series didn't like the movie at all. Uh, but it's it's hard for me to really judge this because I don't have any real frame of reference for it. Anybody who liked Star Wars would like the ending to GI Joe because uh, Rise of Cobra because the 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 pacing and the cutting back and forth, even to two guys having a sword fight while a um, while a dog fight in 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 the in the ocean is happening. Hmm. Uh, it, it is very very Star Wars ish. Uh, I'm hot and cold on that movie. I think some some of the areas they they get it right, and some of the areas they just got it wrong. I think the my biggest problem is that it stars the block of wood, um, Chana, T- uh, Channing Tatum, uh, and he is not he doesn't have a name. He's a block of wood. He's a horrible horrible actor. I I freaking hate him. Um, I, I hate the fact that he's getting so much work too because that means I just have to see his face in commercials. Um, the uh, the three and a three quarter inch line hit me at just the right time because uh, I went through my GI Joe phase when I was like ten eleven, so uh, I got a bunch of the figures. It was the first action figure line that I was very specific with uh, with my parents that I need to have as many good guys as I have bad guys because it bugged the crap out of me when I was a kid. That like with my superpowers line, superpowers is a great action figures line. It, it's just a beautiful representation of the DC universe in action figure form. I hated the fact that there were like three bad guys and 16 heroes because it seemed incredibly unfair. Um, So with the Joes, you could actually do that. Uh, The secret to Larry Hama's run on GI Joe is one, he had a military background. So even though he had to get up to speed because, you know, he was in the military in the late sixties, this is 1982. A lot's changed. And even in, in as the series went along, things would change. There was this issue that I thought was really interesting where you had one of the newer Joes um, talking to two of the older ones and they're complaining because they, they, they have to get back to base to get their pay because uh, they're on a remote mission. And the guy's like, no, dude, they're giving us these cards now that are basically like money cards and you can go to any of the PXs and you know you basically have it in your account. And I was like, that must have happened around that time mm-hmm. uh, with the military. And I thought, wow, that's just, it's just something little that you can just latch onto and go, God, that, that just makes it more awesome. The, the secret, though, is he took a military idea and made it very superhero soap opera-ish, where you had the bad guys that were over the top but had rich backgrounds and the heroes, because G.I. Joe in the 80s is very superhero-ish. You have their real names, you have their code names, which is their superhero name, and they all have a special power. They all have one little thing they're really, really right. good at. And when you consider like how he took the origin of Cobra Commander, who was very different from the cartoon, and wrapped that into Snake Eyes and had the whole thing with Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow and their background and their past and the fact that Scarlet, unlike the cartoon where she was obviously in love with Duke, was in love with Snake Eyes, and that Snake Eyes was a soldier who, was, who came home from Vietnam and was waiting for his family to pick them up, and they're killed by a drunk driver. That drunk driver was the brother to Cobra Commander, 
who was so angry and bitter embittered by his brother's death and the fact that he could never make a go of any of his businesses that basically he starts a terrorist organization that funds itself by selling Amway type products <laughs> and just and just takes over this entire town of Springfield. It's an entire town that is full of nothing. Even the kids are all part of the terrorist cell. And it was just like, this is awesome. So, I love G.I. Joe. I love the comic books. I really do. I, I have to rebuild my collection because I foolishly sold them in 2001 when I could get a lot of money for them. Um, but, yeah, those I would recommend picking up. And the later issues of this I would recommend picking up. But that's all I got because I think I've gone on enough. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, I had early issues of the of the Marvel series. I want to say it was the first the first twelve, I think, just to have a, an even dozen, you know, just to have the first year. And uh, I don't remember a whole lot about them, but I, I, I you know I I didn't dislike it or anything. I just it didn't it didn't fully suck me in, but uh, one of these days I wouldn't mind. Uh, I'd, I'd like to try to catch the movie just because I know that uh, Ray Parks plays uh, Snake Eyes, and he was, you know, definitely the character that that I remember the most from that. He just seemed like the most interesting character somehow. He had the whole Boba Fett thing working for him, I guess. So, but yeah, that's about all I really got on on GI Joe. I, I had long stopped, you know, long since stopped really talking about GI Joe with people because any any time it ever comes up in conversation. I'm thinking about the old Kung Fu Grip guy, and then they start rattling off, oh, yeah, I love G.I. Joe, and they'd rattle off like the names of like, all these characters. I'm like, I have no idea who the hell you're talking about. <laughs> well, you know, it, 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 is, it is one of the few areas where you will notice the generation gap between the two of us. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's not a bad thing, because, you know, we're, <laughs> you're, uh, I'm not saying this to be mean. You're eight years older than me, and that's significant. Mm-hmm. Uh in what year? Because because it is the difference between between being a child of the seventies and a child of the eighties, right? And that was two very very you know we we both had our awesomeness. I mean I'll, I'll I won't argue that one was inherently better than the other, uh, but at the same time, it, the the culture had completely shifted and what the kids were into. Because yeah, we played Star Wars when I was a kid. But I was seven when when Return of the Jedi came out. Right. So it wasn't like people who were of like you, Scott, who was uh, what like nine years old when the first one came out. Yep. So it was definitely like a a a rite of passage almost. Absolutely. To get through that series, and to me, it was just like one of the cool things I was into. So. Whereas G.I. Joe was and Transformers and seeing the death of Optimus Prime on the big screen, which I never got a chance to, but that was my rite of passage. You know that that's the that's the thing that once you get past that is when you start growing up. So, not that I've. Ever, when am I going to start growing up? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say not that I've ever grown up, but I was just trying to make a highfalutin <laughs> point about the whole thing. What was the name of the communications guy in G.I. Joe? Uh, Breaker, and then Breaker. there was, there was, was another guy named Data. Uh, God, what was his name? Crap, I had his figure. Uh, was Bre- Data? Breaker was the one I was thinking of because I, I actually I only ever owned 
two figures from from that incarnation of G.I. Joe. When they first started to release figures, I thought they were really cool. And I had Snake Eyes, and I had Breaker, and I had the motorcycle. But that was it. That was that was as far as I ever got. I was two, really... F- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, just the two guys and the, and the motorcycle, and that was it. It's really funny to consider that when Hasbro... Uh, was it Hasbro that did G.I. Joe? Uh, yes, because they did Transformers as well. When Hasbro brought uh, G.I. Joe as a concept to Marvel, uh, they just had Commando, Communications Officer. These guys didn't have names. It was Marvel and the editors and Larry Hama getting together and basically saying, uh, okay, who's the bad guy? And they're like, we don't have a bad guy. And Hama's like, what, am I going to write them about them doing maneuvers? I mean, that's not going to be... And basically the story goes that uh, Archie Goodwin was like, yeah, there'll be a bad guy and we'll name him Cobra. And a lot of the uh, the idea for G.I. Joe came from Larry Hama's pitch for a Son of Nick Fury series that never got off the ground. Hmm. Uh, so basically it was a new, like, Nick Fury Jr. and the, the new Howling Commandos. And that basically evolved into what G.I. Joe was. Um. Also, G.I. Joe, the animated series, was produced by Sunbow, which was owned by Marvel. Right. So, the, the, the connections between the two. The most interesting thing about the G.I. Joe comic books, though, and this will be my last point of the episode. Uh, at the time in the 80s, there was a limit on how much animation you could have in a toy commercial. Because they were afraid that, you know, if kids saw something happening in, in like, a, a toy doing something in the cartoon that it couldn't do in real life, that that was being dishonest to the kid. So you couldn't have a whole lot of cartoon stuff, which is why when you look at old toy commercials, they're kind of boring as piss. Now, this is what, G- this is what uh, Marvel and, and, and Hasbro did. Uh, about every so often, Hasbro would come to, uh, to, the, to Larry Hammond and go, okay, in this issue, we want you to have a jungle thing going on, we want you to have an Arctic thing going on, and we got to have something in the desert. Okay? Okay, make that make sense. And what they would do is they would do an ad for the comic book. And the ad for the comic book could be fully animated. And it would hmm. just so happen feature all of the new toys they're trying to push. Hmm. Hmm. Only time in history, really, until very recently... But it was the very first time that you ever saw a commercial for a comic book on television. And I've gone back and watched them, and they're just a hoot to watch. They really are. It's pretty Hmm. clever cross-promotion. Oh, it was brilliant. Because I'm one of these people that when when, when I hear about mother's groups saying that cartoons of the 80s were just 30-minute commercials for the toys, I go, you're goddamn right they were, and it was fucking awesome. (laughs) Hey, I still have a copy of G.I. Joe number one. I'm just looking here at at my database. I don't know when the hell I reacquired that, but yeah, I do have one. I've got number one, and I've got number 26. Is that Snake Eyes origin? Twenty six, yeah, that was when the twenty six and twenty seven were when they were going into the whole Snake Eyes origin and the Hard Master and the Soft Master and why Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow uh, were enemies and how that all played out. Hmm. 
I've got one other uh, Joe-related one, but uh, I, I, you know what? I might cover that on the show at some point, so I'm going to leave that one a mystery for now. Just for, just for shits and giggles. But uh, what was the thing I was going to ask you? Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. Now, the one issue of Transformers that I own, that I've ever owned, is I'm pretty sure it's issue number three. Mm-hmm. It's the one with uh, with the black-suited Spider-Man yep. teaming up with the Transformers. Now, did anybody from the Marvel Universe ever team up with G.I. Joe? Not really. They, no. they they kept those two. They kept it pretty much to its own um, that I remember. Now, there could be like an issue where, where some really bizarre reference was made, and I'm just forgetting it uh, because it's literally been like 13 years since I read through... You know, G.I. Joe number 25 to 107. Uh, boy, was that a fun, fun couple of weeks. Um, but no, they really kept it to its own. Uh, there would be, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, there were references to Marvel characters. And like on the animated series, uh, you would see like them sitting around watching like Spider-Man on the television. Uh, it's really funny, though, that you mentioned that issue because IDW has the Transformers and G.I. Joe rights. And they have been reprinting the crap out of the Marvel material. Uh, Marvel started to in 2001, and they only put out five volumes, which got them up to issue 50. IDW is going all the way. But when they did Transformers, they couldn't reprint issue three. Right. So what they did is they had a text piece basically explaining what happened, and we're basically like, and another character was there that we can't talk about legally. And it was actually kind of funny. I I thought it was hilarious, actually. (laughs) Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, How do you, I wonder, you know, how do you and how do you think uh, other other fans of of G.I. Joe, how do you feel about that, that they never really integrated with the rest of the Marvel U? I think it's better that way. I really... As superhero-ish as Joe was, I don't really need them teaming up with the Avengers. Because really, if Cobra's out there and they're causing a ruckus, why isn't Thor coming in to take care of it? Right. So well, You it, could say that about any of them, though. Really. I, I, I mean, That's true, but to me, it always felt better that it was its own kind of origin, or its own kind of universe. I don't know how other... Luke is, hopefully Luke is listening and will write in on this. Because uh, he's probably telling me all the things I'm wrong about. Because he's much more of an expert. Though, uh, though Rocky Balboa was almost a GI Joe. So yeah, I was just listening to that story you were telling. Well, they did have Sergeant Slaughter. Yes, they yeah. did have Sergeant Slaughter, and they had the, the fridge. The fridge, and I had that figure. He had a little like stick with a football on the end of it, and that was his weapon. Hmm. But Rocky Balboa was supposed to be the guy that would come in and teach them the finer points of boxing. And as I wrote into Hey Kids Comics, that's like having that's where I heard the it. Kar- that's like having the Karate Kid come in to teach the SAS the finer points of martial arts. <laughs> but couldn't you see like a like a some something happening in like New York City or something? You know, some big menace that that they're having to deal with. And you know, typical like like say the Hulk. The Hulk comes to New York City and he's tearing shit up. 
And, you know, the, the superheroes come in to battle him, but in the background they always have the military there. You know, the, the token military guys are there just, you know, for backup to shoot at the Hulk and piss him off or whatever. And couldn't you just see an issue where it was like, it would be like G.I. Joe in the background would be the guys that were there, you know, as the as the backup force or something. I could see something like that. I actually well, don't like know in, to... uh, That's like in the Godzilla comic book where uh, yeah. S.H.I.E.L.D. was uh, right. going after him. Right. And maybe that's what what's making me think that is because that, that, was, uh, that was some early uh, Marvel stuff for me was... Uh, as a matter of fact, I think the very first time I ever read about the the FF was when the FF battled Godzilla. The and FF just, battled Godzilla, really? Oh, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it was it was cool because Godzilla had actually gotten shrunken down to like man size, so he could fight with the thing and stuff. It I mean it seems ridiculous now, but at the time it was actually pretty cool stuff. But I don't know. So for some reason, up until Star Wars came out, you know, this idea of of you know, these things just being integrated into the Marvel Universe was actually kind of a cool idea. I, uh... Now, you know me, I'm not I'm not normally one to take a hard line on things, but uh, but this is one of those few cases where I'm like, no, I don't want that chocolate mixing with my peanut butter, <laughs> basically. And it's a personal thing. I mean, I, I, I see exactly what you're saying. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and I can understand that because I'm like that with other things. But it's like G.I. Joe is going to be the one thing that I'm like, no, I want them to be on their own. Now shut up and leave me alone. <laughs> well, no, I, I could see that, though. I, I, Rom integrated well into the Marvel Universe. Right. Micronauts mm-hmm. integrated well into the Marvel Universe. G.I. Joe, it's a little bit of a tougher sell. Right. But no, believe me, I understand exactly where you're coming from because I remember being absolutely thrilled to no end when there was a, a letter in one of the very early issues of, of Marvel Star Wars, where they, you know, Marvel said, you know, we, we, you know, left no doubt whatsoever that, no, you are not going to see, you know, the Fantastic Four in Star Wars or anything like that. It was just wasn't going to happen. And being very happy about that, because I just don't see how they ever could have pulled something like that off. So, it, it, it's just not something, not, not all team-ups work. I mean, I, I never read the X-Men Star Trek stuff, mm-hmm. but nothing about it appealed to me. I just don't see those two universes meshing very well for <laughs> It's some funny reason. you mention that, because uh, when, when Shag and I were together recently, we uh, we talked about that quite a bit, and uh, I'll have an episode coming out about that not long from now, but uh, yeah, it's just funny that you bring that up, because that was something that we... I can't remember how it came up in conversation, but that was something we ended up talking about was uh, Star Trek X-Men. But no, I agree with you. Some some work and and some don't. Absolutely. It just really depends on on how strong the concept is by itself. Uh, Star Wars. I I would never want to see Spider Man fighting Darth Vader, or or even more, one of the more cosmic things. I wouldn't even want to see like you know Adam Warlock or or right. the Silver Surfer, you know, or or them coming across Galactus somewhere. It just it it just doesn't feel right, you know. <laughs> the only I don't one know, I... the other things the other things you said I'm with, but them coming across Galactus that would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> see Galactus try to eat the Death Star or something. No, the only one I ever wanted with with Star Wars, the only crossover I ever wanted, and and I still kind of want this, but you know, it would just take the right story mechanics to make it all happen. Would be uh, 
Star Wars, Star Trek. I, I'd still like to see that to this day, but... Well, to a certain extent, that kind of works because through wormhole technology and time travel and alternate right. universes, you know, that's that's a stat... Is there a big alternate universe thing in Star Wars EU? Have they ever really played with that? Alternate universes? Yeah, like an alternate reality? Mm, not really. I mean, there's the whole... the the what do they call it, infinities, but I don't know if that's yeah. supposed to be other okay. dimensions or, or if it's just, you know, like a what-if story, you know what I mean? Because it would definitely have to be something that took place, for, like, actually happened in the Star Wars universe, where with Star Trek it could just be, there was this weird wormhole thing, and at the end everything went back to the way it was. Right. You had the adventure, but it doesn't. It, it's kind of like an episode of Voyager. You just don't. You don't. It, it has no lasting ramifications until later in the series. Right. I think that was it. Yes. We're gonna go out on Voyager, really. Oh, you liked Voyager. <laughs> I do like Voyager, <laughs> but still. But it's no, kind of a I, weird one to go out on. I understand. It is. We can I go out on DS Nine. Oh, God, no. I like DS9. I'm sorry for you. (laughs) I love you, Scott. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 